0: What do you not listen to? Um, Chart music. Chart
1: music.
2: Praise youngsters and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the bottom of the sofa on an episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, I'll need them. And I'm joined this time by Taylor Parks. Hello. And Simon Price. Hello. Oh, the P-Squad is all up in that arse, <laughs> pop Craze youngsters. Boys, come and sit next to me and simply tell me all the pop and
3: interesting things that have been going on since last we met. I'm going to take this opportunity to plug a couple of things, if you don't mind. Go ahead. Yeah, a couple of, uh, a couple of hosting and chairing gigs I've got coming up. Uh, one in London, one in Brighton. Um, on Tuesday uh, 25th of March I'm hosting a and a with the writer and DJ Dave Haslam and the mm-hmm. photographer Kevin Cummins uh, and that's at Jackson's oh. Lane Community Centre in Highgate, a place I think Taylor will know pretty well. Um, and that's going to be very Manchester centric, plenty about Hacienda, Joy Division, Smiths etc. But also Punk and the Manics and, and loads uh-huh. of all. Um, And then in Brighton, uh, Wednesday 29th of May, as part of the Auditorium series at the Brighton Fringe... I'm hosting a panel which is called The Gothic in Music, um, starring Rose McDowell from Strawberry Switchblade, um, wow. Johnny Slut from Specimen, John Klein from The Banshees, and uh, the Batcave founder, Hugh Jones. So do come along and shout Bummer Dog at me at either of yeah. those.
4: Rose at Strawberry Switchblade was my first proper pop crush. Yeah, you and me Ooh. both, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell her. She, it'll give her a little thrill, I think, to know. Yeah, that. I,
3: I bet she'd love that, Ted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
4: Um, yeah, I... No. What have you been up to, Taylor? Come on, tell us all. You know how we always say, you know, thank God for the NHS and the welfare state. Well, mm. I've been saying that a lot recently because that's been my life <laughs> the last month or so. Good. Yeah, not really.
2: Well, no, but good that you, <laughs> we, we managed to round it up. In an easily editable way. (laughs) Now then, Pop Crazy Youngsters, we can't take another step before the latest episode up for dissection, before we drop to our knees and give thanks to the latest batch of lovely, lovely Pop Crazy Youngsters who have filled the gussets of our G-strings with the old Teresa Bazaar and David Van Day. So... Let us give a shout out to the new additions to Simon Bates's High Flying Cats who are listening to this a whole day before everyone else. Those people are Tim Kayser, Efion Bedford, Mark Savage, Justina Heslop, Alan McGregor, James Wharton, Jack Kavanagh-Homan, OPEC Dreams, John Daler, The Blood and Mud Podcast, Jamie Buckle, Richard Ogood, John Davies, Jay Fresh... Robin Goad, Robin Smith, Jared Driscoll, Gareth Price, Alan Fisher, a massive contribution from Rupert Gilbert. Thank you very much, sir. Dr. Beat, Paul Whitelaw, John O'Donnell, John Cooper, Tom Brown, Patrick McNally, Russell Cope and Donnie Morrison. Oh, your names are all down. You're coming
3: in. Thank you so much. Legends, a lot of you.
2: Yes, yes, and and let us not forget the brand new Pop Craze $3 patrons. They are Chris O'Clair, Christopher, Paul Sims, Christopher Caruso, Peter White, and Bruce Munro. Bless you, governor. I wonder if it's the real Tom Brown.
3: You know, he used to do the... Funkin' for Jamaica. Well,
2: uh, well, either him or the one who did the Top 40 rundown, who had the really nice, uh, smoky, posh voice. Ah. Used to do the perfume uh, voiceovers as well in the 70s on the adverts. Which ones? Oh, don't ask me off the top of my head, man. Oh, sorry. Tweed by Lontheric, I'm guessing. (laughs) Now, here's something all them pop-crazy youngsters who are hip to the chart music jive already know about that the general population doesn't we're doing another bonus podcast, a Q&A with Sarah B and Neil Kulkane, where they end concealing, try revealing, and open their hearts to you, the pop-crazed youngsters. The Pop Craze Youngsters have been submitting questions and, you know, there's still space for one or two more questions. So if you fancy listening to that and, you know, taking part in it, www.patreon.com slash
3: Give us some money. Come on. You know you want to. I'm still reeling from that last episode that uh, Neil and Sarah did. Uh, it was extraordinary when they just sort of just poured it all yeah. out on like what happened at Melody Maker in the dying days. Um, I wasn't there by that point, you know. Um, Taylor was there a bit longer than me, but I think you bailed out as well, hadn't you, by the very end?
4: Well, I was going to say, since this Top of the Pops we're about to talk about went out when I was not even a zygote and (laughs) you two were preschoolers, and everyone seemed to love the personal touch of the last episode, do you want us to talk about how Mark Sutherland was a cunt first? Yes! (laughs) Because we could. I think I've had my say previously when I was
3: on with Neil um, about about a sort of slightly earlier era, but I, I just thought the way they dealt with it, it was righteous and also slightly heartbreaking Yeah, um, more than slightly heartbreaking really, yeah. um, but I just thought they did it brilliantly.
2: And of course all those pop crazy youngsters have been voting on the new chart music top 10, hit the fucking music no movement at number 10 for Taylor Parks' romantic moments down four places from number 5 to number 9 here comes Jism. Up one place to number eight, it's Gamini Sludge. Down three places to number seven, Bummer Dog. Creeping up one place to number six, it's Your Dark Mates. Top five, and this week's highest new entry Mad Phil and the Gummy Woman. Last week's number six, this week's number four. Fred West Life. Into the top three and no change for Clit Richard. No change at number two. It's still Bergerac Meets Rockers uptown, which means it's number one. It's still there. The chart music number one. The dooleys with ghoulies. A very static chart this week. It's like the First couple of weeks in January, isn't it? Yes. That's that
3: shot. But I'm pleased to see some of the classics hanging on in there. Um, oh, yeah. I think, you know, timeless. Bummer Dog is probably always going to be my personal favourite, but I feel yeah. a strong connection with Here Comes Jism because I was kind of, of course, I was responsible for spotting that. Uh, yes. And also, of course, Gummy Woman. So, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, Madfell and yeah. the Gummy Woman. I, yeah. I, well, you know, you can imagine the, 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 the romantic moments they're having.
3: Oh, I bet, yeah. What was yeah. it decided the gammony sludge sound like? Well, gammony
4: sludge, okay. basically. <laughs> I think it was originally a about Kasabian, wasn't of it? Kasabian, so yes. they sound like exactly like Kasabian. Yeah, yeah Bummer Dog and Here Comes Jizzam are like the the Dark Side of the Moon and Brothers in Arms. Of this <laughs> <laughs> I'm very fond of your dark mates, of hell.
3: your dark mates as well as what? Yeah, because I I uh, dredged up the offending letter. Mm. From Melody Maker, back in the day. So, this episode,
2: Pop Crazy Youngsters, takes us all the way back to April the 29th, 1971. Making it the second earliest episode of the topmost of the Poppermost we've ever done. So, first question to you, Simon. Mm. When we say the music of 1971, what immediately
3: springs to your keen Welsh mind? Um, I suppose... T-Rex, um, because even mm-hmm. though I was too young to be listening to music at that time, um, I went through a massive, massive phase of you know being obsessed with Mark Bolan uh, in my teens, and uh, yeah, T-Rex for me. Good skills. Taylor?
4: Are we talking about the six-venties here? Oh, here we go. Um, oh, yes. See, I don't know if we are, right, because it is a definite real thing, mm. the six-venties, but... Unlike the eighties or the nineties, yeah. or even the fixties, <laughs> it was over and done with really quickly. Yeah, right? it, I think the Sixventies began basically on that miserable day at the start of nineteen sixty-nine when the Beatles turned up to start shooting Let It Be. Yes, um, and I think it ended when. T Rex were on top of the pops with hot love. Mm. It's a really short amount of time. The changeover was very fast because it was so natural, right? Mm. Uh from the sixties to the seventies it just involved hair getting longer, lapels getting wider, um drug taking going from a, you know, a lively novelty to a daily grind. Mm. Uh the collapse of hope into nihilism and you know idealism and uh, cynicism but it was a natural progression it just happened it was a continuation so by the time pink floral shirts are on the high street you know mm. and Terry Scott has got massive sideburns <laughs> it's all happened it's over yeah. right it is, but it is a thing there's a the first series of Monty Python you know very early color television Job Pertwee's first ser- series of Doctor Who yeah. and Apple Records and Bobby Moore getting arrested for nicking a bracelet <laughs> in Colombia, But it's really, it's just 1969 and 1970, because you've got that 70s looseness and drab flamboyance has already come in, but there's still that residual smartness yeah. from the 60s, like nice suits and stuff, you know, mm. which would soon swell up and collapse in on itself. But I think any time after, what is it, March 1971, when hot love had been on top of the pops, is culturally the 70s. So yeah. what we've got here is the very beginning of the proper 70s. You know, the the beards are grown and the trousers are frayed around the hem and everyone's ready.
2: Yeah, it's the dawning of the age of whatever came after the age of Aquarius then, isn't it? The age of Brentford nylons. <laughs> I mean, me, you, and Neil Taylor, we had a proper dig, uh, an episode from 1970 a while back. You know, has, has anything changed between that episode and this one, apart from this one being in colour?
4: Yeah, I think it's just, I think it's just that that the last, uh, the last specks of the 60s have been blown away. Mm. You know, yeah. Uh, there's acts on this Top of the Pops that it's inconceivable that they would have been around. Uh, A year earlier, you know.
2: Uh, I'm just looking through the uh, the 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 LP releases of this month, and it's got we've got the Donny Hathaway debut LP, uh, "Giving It Back" by the Isley Brothers, which is fucking brilliant. Uh, Where I'm coming from, Stevie Wonder, "L.A. Woman" by the Doors, and of course, "Sticky Fingers" came out about oh about four days ago. Yeah. If you
3: if you got a record token round about this time of year, you you'd be you'd be well chuffed, wouldn't you? If you get hold of one of the sticky fingers with a zip up the front, yeah. Be amazing.
2: Mm. Radio one news. So in the news this week, John Lennon and Yoko Ono have been arrested in Mallorca over the alleged kidnapping of Ono's seven-year-old daughter. The sex education film Growing Up has been banned in the UK as it features a masturbating teacher from Birmingham who has now been suspended. (laughs) The Queen's been badly, but managed to get out of the house to look at some horses. The young liberals are about to organise a huge burn-up of census papers in Trafalgar Square at the weekend in a protest over over over-personal questions.
4: They They were such weirdos, the young liberals. Yes. There's a whole book to be written about them. Very strange people. Not what you would expect at all. Not these mild-mannered young guys in corduroys. No. They were a bunch of nuts at this point. <laughs> the US
2: Army admit that over 30,000 soldiers in Vietnam are smackheads. 15 million people watch an episode of This Week on ITV as it's a documentary about VD, complete with close-ups of willies and fannies. <laughs> <laughs> some some of whom are, are quite diseased,
4: which is nice. Yeah, but it's you know, but you you take what you can get. At this
2: point, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Just just as well most people have got black and white tellies, eh? <laughs> Liverpool FC have turned down a request from George Harrison and Ringo Starr, who wanted a dozen free FA
3: Cup final tickets. I should think so too.
2: Yeah. Oh, they decide to come from Liverpool again, do they? (laughs) Fuck off. A belly dancer from Istanbul has promised three nights of Turkish delight for any home player who scores against West Germany in next week's European Championship qualifier. They lose 3-0. Jeremy Spencer has legged it out of Fleetwood Mac halfway through their American tour and eventually turns up a few days later in the religious cult The Children of God. Princess Anne tells Valerie Singleton on Blue Peter that she doesn't wear hot pants. But the big news this week is that David Bowie, a one-hit wonder who had a cash-in hit about space travel two years ago, has popped up in the Daily Mirror wearing a dress.
4: (laughs) Some people will just do anything for publicity. Yeah,
2: what happened to him? On the cover of The Enemy this week, Ringo Starr on the cover of tv times wendy craig in the first episode of and mother makes three the number one lp is machine head by deep purple over in america the number one single is joy to the world by three dog night and the number one lp is pearl by janis joplin so me boys what were we doing in april 1971
3: what were our parents doing more like um tiny red spiders um the size of a pinhead all moving around on a concrete garden wall. Um, that's the first thing that comes to mind when I try and take myself back there. Um, I've late, I've later right. found out that they're called clover mites. Um, they're arachnids, less than a millimetre long, um, completely harmless. Yeah. Uh, but I used to stare at them for ages, and um, I was three years old. So these are kind of this is right on the horizon of what I can and can't remember. Um, so these mm. are my first memories of being alive, really. So they're episodic and impressionistic, kind of jumbled snapshots, a bit like. Uh, a flashback sequence in Life on Mars or Ashes to Ashes or something like that. Um, Mm. My mum and dad were still together at this point, um, in contrast to all the divorce trauma of some of the uh, episodes that we've done, um, living in a very cool little maisonette, uh, which would then have been brand new, I guess. Um, Perfect for a hip young couple. Um, They'd previously been living uh, in a flat above a chip shop. Um, And they were still... When I think about it, they were still just kids, uh, really. My dad had just turned 26... Uh, my mum would have been 23. Um, the place was quite sparse and minimal. I remember no carpets, no wallpaper, um, just oh, painted walls and a couple of rugs on the floor. Um, I remember a big clay amphora that my dad had made and um, a child's wicker basket chair that was mine. I've still got that chair. Oh, nice. Um, and then these odd little things, just odd little flashes. Uh I remember posing with a football for a photo, squatted down with one finger on the ball because that's what I'd seen players doing on bubblegum cards, right? <laughs> um, I remember going to the steam locomotive graveyard at Barry Island and climbing over the rusty engines wearing a very fetching bright yellow suester and oil skin coat. Um, there are photos of this somewhere. Um, mm. I remember, and this is really zooming in, I, I remember seeing a plug in the wall... On which my dad had stuck a strip of Dymo lettering that said AMP. I asked him what right. I asked him what AMP meant, but I didn't understand the answer because I was three. Um <laughs> I, I remember seeing men in sports kits huddled in a circle on the TV and asking my dad, Is that the World Cup? And he said, No, it's the rugby. Um uh. and uh I remember once refusing to eat my breakfast my mum had made for me and then being scared shitless when uh, a disembodied voice came booming out going, um, I am the ghost of the empty tummy, eat your food and obey your mummy. And um, and I wolfed down the food in record time in silence. And it was my dad who had heard what was going on from upstairs and bellowed into the air conditioning vent so that it echoed into the kitchen. Um, and it scared I've got to say, that is top-class <laughs> <Yes. guarantee. laughs> But do I really remember that, or do I just remember that story from the retelling so many times? I don't know. Mm. Um, I wasn't even old enough for school yet, obviously, but I was an early reader, and early writer, because my yeah. mum was like that. She taught me. Um, but I do remember, I was going to nursery school, right, um, in a church hall that was later used for the line dancing scene in Gavin and Stacey. Um, and I've got two main memories of that. One of them is um, a teacher showing us how sellotape worked um, by breaking a, a baguette, a, fre- a French stick in half and then taping it back together, which, you know, in, in hindsight was a bit irresponsible and weird. And um, I also remember one of my mates there having his head flushed down the toilet by bullies. I mean, the oh. bullies at nursery school, but that was life for a, oh, a three-year-old uh, on the mean streets of Barry. So there you go. Yeah,
4: and meanwhile, on the West Bromwich-Tipton borders... Uh, young teenage boy is about to make his teenage girlfriend pregnant again. Uh, (laughs) To which her father will say we kept the first one, but we're not keeping this one. Um, And what could possibly go wrong Jeez! in that young lad's life? Um, So, yeah, I'm not here. I'm not even a twinkle.
2: Man. Well, I mean, my first memory was uh, staying up late um, eating fish and chips and watching budget which had just started this month on ITV, but I'm, I'm sure it wasn't, it wasn't that early, uh, but I was, uh, my, my mum and dad had just moved to number seven Plimsoll Street in Ice and Green, uh, which was at the top of a very steep hill, which still had cobblestones, and it was cross the road from a chip shop called Moby Dick, And a pub called The Old General, which was named after a Victorian mentalist who'd get kids to lob stones at the the local schools and then he'd go round and demand protection money off the headmasters. That's, uh, you know, if you do that kind of thing in Nottingham, you get lion eyes. And there was an actual statue of him in the uh, top floor window right in the middle in Victorian costume and every Christmas they put a Santa costume on him (laughs) beautiful I mean my dad was working for uh I think he was working for the co-op as a removal man and uh, my mum was stuck at home with me and me baby sister who was oh she would have been a year and a bit and I immediately took a dislike to her because you know that's that's how it goes. I was two days off my third birthday. And yeah, like, like you, Simon, I could already read. When, whenever we were out, my mum would shove a copy of the Daily Mirror in my hands and go, watch him, he can read that. And uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> to the amazement of all, I should have should have set myself up as a circus act or something. The
4: amazing reading boy.
2: Yes, <laughs> yes. The, the amazing reading boy of Nottingham. <laughs> oh, um, music-wise... I think he had a roly-poly that made sort of uh, jingly noises. That was my favourite sound at the time.
3: Oh, I had the um, I had a seven-inch single of The Jungle Book, which, um, Ooh. yeah, and um, on one side it had the story and the, the sleeve was a book and it told, there was like a ding a telling you when to turn the page, but right. on the B-side was um, The Bare Necessities and I Want to Be Like You, which Ooh. I fucking rinsed. I loved that record. Yeah, I still got it, in fact. The original or no, t- the, yeah, I've st- the I've still got... version? What? Uh, no, I'm, I'm talking about the, the Disney version. I've, I've got that uh, from when I was a kid. Still got authentic it. right from the off, eh, Simon? Yeah.
2: <laughs> so what else was on telly today? Well, BBC One has started at 9.38am with schools programmes and then shut down for an hour and 45 minutes before returning with, help me, Simon, Diskebil Yudewith. <laughs> ha
3: uh, I'm going to have to look up the spelling of that. D I S G Y B L. Well, for a start, the Y sound is uh, so it's dusk something. Duskable Udwith? Y D W Y F. Udwith. Um, uh, ed- um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what it means, but um, I'm going to give Google Translate
2: is saying I pupil.
3: Is it? Yeah. I'm going to give you six out of ten for the pronunciation effort. Not bad at all.
2: Good skills. Let me just. Uh, Wipe the spittle off my screen before continuing. <laughs> Chigler, the news, then shuts down again for 12 minutes before more schools programmes. Then it's Play School, Jackanore, Blue Peter, possibly with or without Princess Anne talking about hot pants, the French adventure serial Desert Crusader and Hector's House before the news and Nationwide. They've just finished an episode of the drama series The Doctor's. BBC 2 begins at 11am with Play School and then shuts down for 7 hours and 15 minutes before coming back at 25 to 7 with computers in business. They've had a 5 minute interval, what no Tom and Jerry or anything, and are just getting stuck into a maths programme in Open University. ITV waits until 1.30pm before the start transmission with racing from Newmarket, followed by a growing flame Origami, some housewifey blather in Tea Break, and a repeat of Peyton Place. Then it's Gulliver, Magpie with Susan Strikes and Tony Bastable, The News, Regional News in Your Area, Crossroads, and they've just started the 1957 Stanley Baker film Hell Drivers, about lorry drivers who move gravel about, which also features Sid James, Herbert Lom, David McCallum, Patrick McGowan, William Hartnell. Gordon Jackson and Sean Connery. Yeah. Fucking hell. It's, it's the wild mm. geese of lorry driving, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, oh, it's film? a great film, that is.
4: <laughs> that is a real man's film.
2: All right, then, pop craze youngsters. It's time to go way back to April of 1971. Always be aware we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. It's five past seven on Thursday, April 29th, 1971, and we are immediately assailed by stop-motion images of a woman's eye and mouth, punctuated by green sound waves and eventually spilling into a montage of some of tonight's acts while the top of the Pops Orchestra pile into a whole lot of love by Led Zeppelin. Bit of a boring opening montage, isn't it, Taylor? Compared to the uh, the thrills and spills we've had before. Yeah, it's
4: just spoilers.
2: Doesn't that kind of blow the uh, the liveness of the show?
3: Isn't it saying right up front, all oh, this has already been recorded? Good point. Um, and I, I I agree with you on on the spoilers part, but boring, I I disagree. Uh, I have got to say, um, I mean, I I would say because you know um, you were talking about the the 60s being over already at this point i don't agree with that either just purely based oh. on these credits because the thing with these open opening credits is it's a trip because that that psychedelic aesthetic is still in full effect because yeah you've got mm. the close up of a lipstick mouth but you've got that kind of garishly coloured lens flare going on you've got distorted faces in a sort of pink and green monochrome, and, and, and you've got the letters at the top of the Pops logo melting in and out yeah. of focus. And, yeah, that's all cut together with those tiny snippets of the performances to come. But it's trippy, I would say. There's no other word.
4: Yeah, it's just the BBC a couple of years out of date, as usual.
3: Mm. I mean, because of
2: the 1971, they had, uh, you know, American bombers and everything, mm. didn't they? Yeah, and an egg. Pinball. Yeah, and an egg and pinball. <laughs> <laughs> not pinball with an egg though because that, that wouldn't last very long would it
4: no but I mean these are these are pop art images aren't they so yeah. they were slightly out of date then as well now they've yeah. just upgraded to uh, sort of an LSD influence title sequence just too late yeah but I take that mm. as
3: just another example of the thing that we've observed so many times of a decade not really happening until slightly into the next decade for most people you know, yeah. the 60s happened in yeah. London, sure, but for most people watching Top of the Pops around the country, this would have seemed bang up to date to them. And yeah. often, if you look at the way people dress in the Top of the Pops audience around this time, it just looks very 60s, I think. Yeah. And we we do have the second best top of the pops logo as well. Hmm.
2: The, the the Mexico 70 font. It's cool. I do like yeah, it. Yeah, you can't you can't fuck with that font. Yeah. So eventually we're greeted by the sight of this week's host, clad in a lemon suit jacket with big pointy lapels and a caramel paisley shirt, surrounded by a cluster of the kids, some of whom are wearing Rag Week t-shirts. It's none other than Tony Blackburn.
3: Good old Tony, eh? Yeah, good old Tony. But the first the very first thing we see him do, wearing his lemon yellow suit, is pointing at the crotch of a girl. Um yes. already that's a worrying start, isn't it? It is, yes, it is.
2: And it's it's not been a it's not been a good couple of months for Tony, has it? After an abdominal operation that developed complications in February, uh, Tony Blackburn ignored medical advice and returned to his breakfast slot in early March. Due to his complications, he was told to cancel his forthcoming three-week holiday to Tenerife in March and spend time under medical supervision. With his chair being taken over by Dave Lee Travis and then Dave Eager, a DJ from BBC Radio Manchester who is now best known as being Jimmy Savile's minion who appeared at his funeral wearing a sweatshirt with Jimmy's Eager Helper printed on the front. Then... In the first week of this month, the News of the World ran a front-page article about the suicide of Claire Offland, a 15-year-old girl who appeared as a regular dancer on Top of the Pops, and the diary she left, which named two DJs. The inquest, held a week after her death, claimed that the diary contained details about her being seduced by Blackburn and other celebrities, including Frank Sinatra. Her adopted mother claimed that she was, quote, unpredictable and lived in a world of her own, and the coroner recorded a verdict of suicide. And this is the first appearance of Tony Blackburn on Top of the Pops since April the 1st.
3: I mean, um, as well as Frank Sinatra, apparently, uh, Rock Hudson was named. That's right, yes. Which, which for all kinds of reasons, I'm a bit sceptical about.
2: Uh. There's an article in Rolling Stone magazine, I think it's the month after after next, by the the, the writer Robert Greenfield. And, uh, you know, if you don't mind, I'd like to read quite a big chunk of it because this is the best description of Top of the pops in the early 70s that we're going to get. So, go ahead. One month before her 16th birthday, Claire Uffland is dead. On the last Monday in March, she went up to her bedroom and swallowed enough of her mother's sleeping pills to kill herself. Six days later, her picture took up the four right-hand columns of the largest circulation newspaper in the Western Hemisphere. In huge white letters against a black background, the News of the World headline trumpeted, BBC pop scandal, this girl was a victim, now she is dead. Two months earlier, the same picture had run in a newspaper. The caption under it then read, Samantha Clare, I was always in trouble with the nuns, but it was worth it. Samantha Clare was one of the stage names Claire Irene Offland used. Her death has been seized by the British press and made into a scandal of major proportions. The story has all the ingredients that sell newspapers. The possibility of sex and paola at so venerable an institution as the British Broadcasting Corporation, involving well-known TV and radio personalities, the grief of parents bewildered at a daughter's death, and a behind-the-scenes look at the heartbreak that every Bond secretly knows is really the essence of show business. Although much of it might seem a throwback to the 50s, where the world was straighter and scandals more appreciated, if much of it seems to verge on the dime-novel sentimentality of a badly made Judy Garland movie, there is one thing about it all that is very real. A young girl is dead. Claire Ufflin was adopted when she was six weeks old. She began her show business career modelling children's clothes for TV commercials at the age of three. When she was 11, her mother and father were divorced. She remained with her mother, who remarried two years later. The family moved to Watford, a comfortable London suburb. Claire attended convent school, but was not a particularly attentive or dedicated student. Her life was show business. She had a pleasant voice and liked to dance. During the summer months, she appeared in holiday reviews at resorts. One July, at age 15, she left school to work full-time at her career. In Great Britain, dropping out is not the shocking deviation it is in America. Compulsory schooling ends at 16. The age of consent is 16, and kids tend to grow up faster. Dropout 15-year-olds hold regular jobs, usually gruelling, nine-to-five menial positions that will keep them trapped for the rest of their lives. Claire began by going to auditions in the West End, attending radio shows, pushing for a break. It came when she began dancing on Top of the Pops. Top of the Pops is an English television phenomenon. The show is the BBC's concession to the revolution. The revolution that happened seven years ago when Swinging London was all topsy-turvy and awash with groovy fab gear rock and roll bands. The format is American bandstand type kids who dance, interact with live performing acts and tapes and films, all in colour, much of it very pretty and flashing. There is a group of girls with pipe stem legs called pans people in the Bobby Gentry Las Vegas genre who dance, different disc jockeys alternators host, Jimmy Savile and Tony Blackburn being the most popular. Along with a programme called Disco 2, Top of the Pops is the only regular weekly place that you can see and hear pop music on television in Britain. As such, it occupies a unique position of power. An appearance on the show may not be enough to make or break a record by itself, but even so auspicious a band as the Rolling Stones felt it wise to make it down to BBC's White City Studios to tape songs from their new album, which happened last week. Samantha, the name most people knew Claire by, was asked back to dance week after week. Her picture appeared over a newspaper article about the top pop dollies. She got to meet disc jockeys. In her diary, on which the News of the World based its story, she wrote that a DJ took her home and gave her a pill which made her feel as if she was floating on a cloud. She also wrote that she had spent the night with him. One of the girls who danced with her on the show always said that Claire went out with two different disc jockeys and told everyone she was proud of having slept with one of them. Samantha's mother found her diary and unlocked it. She forbade her daughter to appear on Top of the Pops again. Claire went back to attending dancing school. Her mother suggested she think about finding a regular job to fall back on. She saw one of the disc jockeys again and wrote in her diary that he had kissed her goodbye. Her mother said she seemed terribly depressed. On March the 29th, there was a family argument. At about 8 o'clock, Claire went up to her room to play with her tape recorder or watch television, her mother thought. The next morning, she found Claire's body. The last entry in her diary dated March the 29th was read aloud at the inquest. In part, it reads... Don't laugh at me for being dramatic, but I just can't take it anymore. All anyone has ever done is tell me what a problem I am. I am just a dreamer, and none of my dreams will ever come true. I just can't face reality. I wish someone would really love me. Well, I have got some of mum's old pills. I'm not sure what they are, so I'm going to eat them all, and some bread to keep it down. In brackets, bet it doesn't bloody work. I know it is awful and I am being very selfish. I am sick of being told how selfish I am. God bless. Three extinct kisses followed. The cause of death was established by the coroner to be barbiturate poisoning. A Scotland Yard officer stated it would be ridiculous to connect anyone or anything mentioned in her diary with reality. The verdict of the inquest was suicide while the balance of the mind was disturbed. In the opinion of the local pathologist, Claire Ufflin was a virgin when she died. I'll come back to that article later because it is a big fucker, but it's worth reading out. Top of the Pops has has been under scrutiny eh, in 1970 when uh, Man Alive did the documentary about the DJs, Uh, but it's taken a bit of a dark turn this year. At the beginning of the year, there was a a payola scandal at the BBC regarding Disco 2, and uh, one of the producers... Uh, offering to get bands on for a bit of a backhander. But this is a bit more uh, nasty,
4: isn't it? Yeah, well, the thing about this, in recent years, the two things that uh, have been much discussed is uh, sexual wrongdoing at the BBC, particularly uh, in the pop music and light entertainment field, Mm. and how you should always believe accusers. And it's a bit uncomfortable to have this very unhappy corrective there. Mm. That sometimes uh, people say things that aren't true, mm. um, and it's not out of spite or meanness. No, it's because they're not very well. Um, yeah, and well, it's, it's not even that. Of...
2: It's just adolescent fantasy, isn't it? I mean, you could say this is a bit of a Claire Scott and Mister Hotwood in Grange Hill.
4: Yeah, yeah. It's just I, I don't know. It's unc- people don't like to hear it, but it's. Uh, mm. I think there is a bit of a dangerous misunderstanding developing of what it means to respect accusers, right? Which is that what you're supposed to do is listen to them, take them seriously, and not dismiss them. Mm. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean that as soon as someone opens their mouth, they're telling the truth. Mm. Um, It just sends a bit of a shiver down the spine of anyone who's ever had unpleasant dealings with anyone prone to overstatement shall we say mm. um which an awful lot of people have
3: um i think taylor makes some very good points there i just think it's an incredibly sad story and yeah. um it it seems um it, it it just feels wrong in 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 the mind and in the mouth to be talking of somebody lying uh when you know for, at, a at this distance and b when we don't really know the full facts but just from mm. the facts as they're presented there um it, you know, on on the face of it, it does seem that she was a bit of a fantasist and, uh, as Taylor says, not very well. Um, and uh, if it had happened to any kid in any part of the country uh, and, you know, living any sort of life, even if they were just a normal school kid not going on top of the Pops, um, it would be a really bleak story. Um, the fact that she was going on top of the Pops... Obviously, lends it, uh, th- th- this other kind of dimension, which um, in, in 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 much later years, of course, would affect Tony Blackburn. Mm. Also, the, the the fact is that we we do know that stuff not dissimilar to the things she described were going on. Yeah, they were going on with with Jimmy Savile and They were going on at the BBC. They were going on at Top of the Pops. Mm. Um, so, this is the weird thing. It's not entirely beyond the realms that something like this could have happened. Yeah, it just would appear that in her particular case, it did not. I'm
2: going to drag in another article if you, if you don't mind.
3: Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah.
2: There's an article uh, in the journal in uh, which I believe is a local newspaper. I can't remember which one off the top of my head. Uh, April the sixth, nineteen seventy-one, and uh, uh, the inquest on Claire Ufflin has focused attention on the pop scene. This article tells what's happened to other girls and how DJs have to live with the idolatry they attract the beautiful dark haired girl said her name was Lottie she said she was a reporter from a German pop paper and she was doing a series of at home features on famous British disc jockeys the famous British disc jockey invited her in and a tape recorder and showed her his famous British disc jockey's flat and went to make some tea when he came back she wasn't in the living room where he had left her she was in his bed her reporter's outfit and tape recorder stacked neatly on a chair she let a few things slip like her accent, her real identity and her age. She was 14. Needless to say, the famous British disc jockey didn't want his name mentioned. It all happened a few months ago and he has made sure it never happened again. Later on in the article... Uh, A probation officer based in central London put it this way. There is a whole generation of young people who have known nothing but pop music and its values since the day they were born. It isn't a novelty to them. It's a natural way of life and they have embraced it without question. I have had to deal with dozens of girls under about 15 who honestly see nothing wrong with sleeping with pop people. They come from all sorts of environments and it's wrong to presume they have all come from broken homes or unsettled backgrounds. The vast majority of them are just ordinary young girls who just happen to believe that pop music and the people who produce it are the only things on earth worth worrying about.
3: Do you know what's interesting about that to me is that when people say, "Oh, the '70s were different times," mm. they they usually say it in order to um, excuse the older male, yeah, um, who's you know sort of taking advantage of the availability of, of young girls. Mm. Um, but what that article also reveals is that it was a different time for girls as well yeah um that uh you know they under under the age of 15 so, you know in, in the words of the article saw nothing wrong with it and of, of, of course um the the thing to say straight away is just because they see nothing wrong with it doesn't mean that makes it okay yeah for the older male to then just you know take advantage of that yes but um yeah, I th- that coupled with the previous article, it's it's a really interesting window into things. The previous one, um, part of nothing else, just the way that Americans uh, view Britain and British pop culture. Mm. It was yeah. Uh, we
2: will we will come back to that article because it, okay. it speaks a lot of it. It says a lot of interesting things about top of the pops at the time. I'll definitely put this on the video playlist. The uh, the Man Alive documentary from the late sixties called The Ravers, which I'm sure we've all seen yeah. about about the uh, the. Um, Kind of like the fledgling groupie scene in the in the UK, because see, being being a groupie wasn't uh, it wasn't a term of abuse, was it back then?
4: No, is this the one with Simon Dupree and the yes. big Sound? Yeah, 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 and it like apart from the existence of the groupies, it makes being in a group look really miserable, mm. like all documentaries from this period yes. do. Mm. You know, if you're not in the Beatles, it looks like a a, a bleak life.
2: And i uh, will just chuck in one more thing from that article uh one of the djs uh was asked about it and he said look my friend us djs are all big handsome fellas and if the Judies didn't fancy us we wouldn't be doing our job that's the business we're in the business we're not in is running girls of 13 and we'd be mad to do it i do my work i do a bit for charity and i enjoy myself at the same time there's nothing in the rules to say I shouldn't be a human being. Just count the teeth first, my son. Always count the teeth. Uh. Answers on a postcard, everyone.
0: Lovely. Welcome along, everyone, to Top of the Pops. And uh, as you can see, we've got loads and loads of uh, students from the Slough Technical Training College. That's right, isn't it? And uh, lovely, lovely T-shirts. Thank you very much for giving us a lovely time when we came down to judge the beauty queen contest and everything. Right, we've got some lovely records for you. Brand new number one sound starting off with this one from McGuinness Flint, and it's called... It is. Here it is right now.
2: Tony reveals that the studio is packed this week by students from Slough Technical Training College. And it doesn't exist anymore, unsurprisingly, but probably a fucking academy or something. Tony thanks them for inviting him down to judge the Beauty Queen contest because, as we've already established, what better judge of human beauty than Tony Blackburn? Yeah. Do you think the Slough Technical College mention was shoehorned in to drive home the point that
3: these ladies are over 16 um, Yeah, possibly. Although I did Mm. think there was almost a bit of a smoking gun there where he goes, because what he actually said was, thanks for giving us a lovely time when we came down to judge the Beauty Queen competition. Mm. And immediately I'm thinking, yeah, I bet they did. And you've you've got to wonder whether there was any uh, quid pro quo in terms of getting them tickets for Top of the Pops. And you Mm. can hypothesise the quid or the quo yourself, obviously.
4: (laughs) The thing is, though, Tony Blackburn always looks terrified when he's surrounded by young women. Right. Mm. Even when he's not, he looks kind of nervous. Yeah, but when he's surrounded by young women, he's just trembling. Right? He's in fact, he's the only DJ. If, well, the only DJs from this period who don't look like they're poised to descend on mm. the schoolgirls <laughs> are Tony Blackburn and the gay ones. Um, yes. But <laughs> what his, a great band they are! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are uh, rock steady. Um, <laughs> but is. Lack of confidence is almost as disturbing as the overconfidence of other DJs. But it's mm. really striking. And it's like, you think, no wonder he couldn't get it up when he went to bed with Babs Windsor. Yes. You know what I mean? Which is like the sexual equivalent of a East End gangland walking tour. Little bit <laughs> intimidating. Whereas here he's in a crowd of polite young women from Slough yeah. who think he's like a... a like an untalented beetle, you know. Yes. Yeah. They're instinctively deferential in his presence, you know.
2: Yeah, and, and of course, Barbara Windsor was in the uh, on the panel of the Gong Show when Channel Four tried to have a go at it. When Tony Blackburn uh, appeared roller skating, dressed as Superman, singing "Land of Hope and Glory." For fuck's sake, have you not seen that, no, Simon? No, no. When the the clock strikes for Brexit, if it ever does. That's the first thing I'm going to watch. All right, that'll calm me down. <laughs> I skimmed through Pop Tastic and I touched upon the uh, the Barbara winds a bit. And apparently he was uh, he was talking to a mutual friend at a party, saying that he uh, he quite fancied her and everything. And uh, she came over to him and said, "I hear you want to fuck me." <laughs> Bless her, national treasure. The thing mm.
4: is, though, considering what's been going on in the weeks leading up to this mm. maybe that's why he looks extra nervous yeah. around these women yeah um although it's hard to tell it's like he he blows every single line in mm. this introduction mm. but the thing is he always does yeah so it might just be Blackburn you know in his prime undiluted and yeah totally lost you know it's the weirdest thing about him is that Every morning, like every morning, he talks. Like this is his job. He yeah. talks and talks into a microphone live on the radio. Yeah, for and, hours. He, and he's
2: pretty good at it as well. You know, Duran Duran notwithstanding.
4: Right, but we see him here, and every time we see him on top of the pops, he yeah. can barely get three words out without yeah. fucking it up. It's like he's got that that wax-lipped smile. It's mm. like, uh, it it's like it's cover in a constant state of mild panic, you know. Mm. I would have thought he would have loved to perform. He would love the attention. Yeah. Um, He'd love to have his ego stroked in that way. But he's terribly ill at ease, especially when there's ladies present. Yeah. I mean, here it's like, it's a, the first thing he says on the whole show is, we've got loads and loads of er uh, students from the er uh, slough, Technical Training College. That's right, isn't it? He doesn't even know who these people are. Yeah. right. He's not interested. Even though he's been there. <laughs> exactly. But he's not even... He can't even do his job properly. He can't even memorise one small detail, yeah. which is the first thing he has to say on the whole yeah. programme.
3: You might yeah. be right, Al, uh, about the reason for him bringing it up because yeah in in the light of i mean maybe we're projecting who knows if we're just yeah. projecting but um yeah certainly with you know the the, the scandal in the very recent past uh mm. you, you can see why he might basically want to tell the entire nation they are overage yeah. everybody yes. it's fine it's fine because the thing yeah. with um blackburn is uh, we we do know that he had uh, in his uh, in his prime more sex than anyone else in, in britain at least you know according mm. to him uh but you know, uh, also as far as we know, uh, you know, bare minimum he stuck to the age of consent. So there is that, isn't there? Mm. Um, yeah. So you know, and, and I mean, you say we you say we're overthinking it, Simon. But I think the audience are going to be doing
2: exactly the same thing because it's it's massively inconvenient for everyone that he's actually genuinely been out because
3: yeah, it, it it looks like he's been dodging it, doesn't and
2: it? And he's and he's been kept off the air because of that. And it's going to look it look it'll look like he's been oh,
3: suspended sh- or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: You yeah. should have presented this episode in a wheelie oh. cage with a muzzle like Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> after making clear that we're
2: going to hear some lovely records over the next 35 minutes, he introduces the first tune of the evening, Malt and Barley Blues by McGuinness Flint. Formed in London in 1970, McGuinness Flint were named after Tom McGuinness, formerly of Manfred Mann, and Huey Flint, who was a drummer with John Mayle's Bluesbreakers, But they also featured Benny Gallagher and Graham Lyle, a Scottish duo who were signed as in-house songwriters to Apple Records in 1968. This is the follow-up to their debut single, When I'm Dead and Gone, which got to number two for three weeks in December of 1970, held off the top spot by I Hear You Knocking by Dave Edmonds. It's a new entry this week at number 45, and here they are in the studio. And as Neil would say, here we have a definitive non-sandwich band. (laughs) It's got the musk of the early 70s to it, hasn't it?
3: Yeah, McGinnis Flynn—either a conglomerate in the military-industrial complex, mm. or um, a real ale company. Um, and in, in in context, it has to be the latter, doesn't it? Especially as their number includes Gallagher and Lyle, another name that seems yes. to need a, per- a percentage in brackets <laughs> after it on on a chalkboard in in a camera pub. Um, they're, they're, they they are they are a jug band, um, an earthenware jug band, and yeah. on the side of the earthenware jug in Oldie worldie lettering, it says McGuinness Flint. You could just see it. Mm. Um, the, the performance, this performance is top of the whistle test. I'm saying, yes. and uh, um, McGuinness Flint are the Mungo Jerry that Bob Harris would find acceptable. Mm. Um, and this this won't be the last old grey whistle test, um, or the last Mungo Jerry reference no, of the episode. No, 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 um, it's it's all. Accordions and banjos. This is a very banjo-heavy show. In fact, it is, isn't um, it? It's it's uh, it's Anglo-Scottish Cajun. Uh, it's <laughs> it's entirely white-skinned Creole. Uh, it's yeah. it's Marshall Plan Zydeco. <laughs> um, I, I I had to do a bit of research into who the members were. So, when, uh, you know, because they all look sort of pretty stereotypically beardy early seventies blokes. Um, yeah. So Graham Lyle's the ginger one who's uh, exiled at the front. Uh, mm. while all the others stand in a cosy line together, which is uh, another act of bullying and discrimination um, against those who carry the MC1R gene. Um, the one <laughs> the one with the big F-hole guitar and, and the Joe Jordan face, uh, yes. that, that's Benny Gallagher. And yeah. I, I don't know about you, I thought his voice is awful. Uh, yes. There's that second verse yeah. where he sings someone tries to patronise you when you don't know what. Bloody hell. Yeah. straight not good. in there. Not so, good. so Huey Flint's the drummer and the really uncool, this is really uncool tall one who looks like, you mentioned uh, the Open University maths programme earlier on. Uh, yes. He, he looks like one of the presenters of that. That That's Tom McGuinness. And um, the other one who's neither a Gallagher or a Lyle or a McGuinness or a Flint, that's Dennis Coulson with the accordion and and mm. the perfectly round face. Um. <laughs> the, the the song itself um i think i've mentioned before my love of what i call convivial music so that yeah. that is you're in a pub you you've all worked up a, a friendly fug of cigarette smoke. It's maybe it's December the twenty third and you can almost taste Christmas mm. already. Uh the beer mats, say Double Diamond and and you've got your arms around your mate's shoulders. And the three yeah. touchstones of this, song-wise for me, are Meet Me on the Corner by Lindisfarne, mm. uh See My Baby Jive by Wizard and Roll Away the Stone by Mott the Hoopal. Yes. And and I, I wanted to say the Molten Barley Blues is a second-rate example of that, and and, mm. and the lyrics have got nothing beyond helpfully explaining that if people are a bit aggressive or overbearing, it's because they're pissed. Um, yeah. But but I can't lie, right? I've had this song going around my head for the last twenty four, no, forty eight hours actually. Mm. So um even though I couldn't say I like it. It does have some kind of dastardly power. um, And it peaked at number five, which isn't bad. So clearly it connected on some level. Taylor, in you
4: come, sir. Well, it's. What I dislike, although they're very much of their time, obviously, what I really dislike about them is it's like these fucking hacked up furballs have (laughs) stepped out of present day East London back in time and set up in 1971. You know, they're ugly and they're bearded and they're sort of old young mm. and nothing they have to offer is worth a light mm. and it's entirely for their own benefit, right? Don't let the rusticity fool you. Um, yeah. They're in this for themselves. These are city people, right? Mm. They're doing this. They're ju- it's just them doing a thing. They're playing this stupid barnyard music for themselves, right? They're not giving anybody anything. Mm. Um, I mean, the only difference is that in 1971 they smell worse and there's no, <laughs> yeah. there's no manscaping. No. Uh, we are oh, be no. fairly sure of that. And <laughs> they're much better at playing musical instruments. So, you know, yeah. you gain a little and you lose a little. Mm-hmm. But no, there's just... Oh, and this lot weren't all born rich. That's the other thing. Yeah. Um, but they are really unpleasant. I mean, I, I hate the lead singer as well just because of his pallor. Do you know what I mean? Mm. He's like, he looks like a veal. <laughs> he's, he's really disliked, He's like, it's corn-fed nothing, you know. Mm. Uh, and I mean, without wanting to sound too soft, there is much worse music than this in the world. And yeah. there's much worse music than this on this particular episode of Top of the World. Oh, yes, yes, there is. is. <laughs> Ultimately, I, you know, I'd rather listen to the muffled voices of doctors saying... No, he's gone. As I struggle to signal to them with my eyes that I'm in fact still alive.
1: Um,
4: it, it's the, what it is. It's the pernicious influence of the band, right? yes, yeah. who were, were were influencing everybody at this point, or influencing all like real musicians, right? And the band were great, but they were great because they had a certain depth and dread. And ghostliness to what they did, right? Which is what's really interesting about old music and old times brought into the present day, right? It's like that feeling that you've somehow invoked something old, like mm. uh, like a curious clergyman in an M.R. James story picking up a mysterious trinket. You know what I mean? Whereas <laughs> this is this is just like if Windy Miller had formed a band. <laughs> yes, it's not good. It's it, it's just. People taking the band as a cue to start tunnelling backwards and just ending up like a musical version of the Sealed Knot Society. You know what I mean? It's like a dress-up. It's like a dress-down dress-up. I never thought of the band thing, but you're absolutely right, because... uh, um, if you
3: if you think about it, there's a direct connection, isn't there? Because these guys came out of Manfred Man, Manfred Man covered the Mighty Quinn and all that. So you know there there is that direct sort of. They are obviously Dylan heads to the core. Yeah, yeah. What's going on with the singer's eyebrow? Has he got stitches
2: in it or something?
3: Uh, maybe, <laughs> Probably maybe someone punched in the him face yeah.
2: by a horse or something. A, a drunken <laughs> a drunken
3: horse, but you can't you can't blame the horse. That's just the malt and barley blues talking.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the songs essentially don't listen to piss ads. that are just not worth your fucking time. The
4: thing is, though, right, about hippies, I was thinking recently, right, near where I live, there's two cafes, and when I'm in the laundrette or something and I don't have time to wander, I have to go into one or the other of these two local cafes. Now, they're both real modern East London places in Mm. different ways, right? One of them is basically run by hippies, and it sells homemade seed cakes and doubles as a plant shop so you're surrounded by fronds and stuff when you're in there um and there's a little bloke who works in there with john lennon glasses and an embroidered pillbox hat you know nice they've they decorative coffee bean sacks lying around saying like produce of ethiopia I yeah and then the other one is all ironic brightly colored formica and ironic pictures of Boris Johnson on the walls and stuff. And it's called something like, you know, Jonestown or Abu Ghraib or something like <laughs> Ted Bundy's shed. Or um, And that's the choice, right? Yeah. And you know what? You go in the hippie place and the coffee's really nice and they've got good Arabic music playing and the people are nice and friendly. Then you go in this ironic edgelord place and it costs more and it tastes like they've never cleaned out the coffee machine, oh. right? And everything else is equal because neither of them gets the clientele they want. It's all just foreign students and mums with buggies mm. and me scribbling down notes for this podcast in a notepad. So what it comes down to is, would I rather drink nice coffee and be treated gently or pay more to sit in a ugly environment and drink you know engine oil with bits in so given the choice between two kinds of beardies i will always choose the 70s variety yes at least with their genuine interest in blues and country styles and their lack of entitlement you know and this lot are happy to accept the fact that they're ugly and the reason they don't shave is that they can't be bothered because they're too stoned or you know yeah, whatever it is, she's the only excuse, right? Mm. And when this music isn't playing, I can ignore it. It's not permanently nibbling at the hem of my consciousness and screaming, "This is it. This is all that's left now." Right? Yeah. So, you know, it's all right. It's all right. I mean, I say hippies. This lot aren't what you call peace and love types, but I mean, no. it's, all, it's all the same old grey whistle test, and it. Mm.
2: So, the following week, Malt and Barley Blues soared 22 places to number 23, and three weeks later, it got to number 5, its highest position. However, the group were overwhelmed by their instant success and forced by their label to rush out a second LP. The majority of their first nationwide tour dates were cancelled due to various illnesses, and the follow-up single, Happy Birthday Ruthie Baby, failed to chart. By the end of 1971, Gallagher and Lyle had left the band to form their own duo and Sean of their songwriting heart, McGuinness Flint struggled on until 1975 when they split up after never troubling the charts again. Meanwhile, Gallagher and Lyle scored two top 10 hits in 1976 and Graham Lyle started wiping his arse with £50 notes when his song What's Love Got To Do With It was picked up by Tina Turner in 1984 after being turned down by Cliff Richard and Donna Summer and put out just before Bucks Fizz had the chance to release their version. Fucking hell. A direct link between this and Tina Turner slinking about in a, <laughs> in a leather miniskirt with the hair all out pop a bloody hell
0: great chart down sound there from the Guinness Flint here's another great record gone up 10 places this week to this week's number 20 it's called Indiana Watch Me and here's our Dean Taylor
1: back there wants me.
2: Lord, I can't go back there I'm shy you to talk to without flicking back to Tone we go straight into the next single which he describes as another great record Indiana Wants Me by R. Dean Taylor. Born in Toronto in 1939 Richard Taylor began his career in the early 60s as a pianist and vocalist in assorted local groups. In 1964, he was hired by Motown as a songwriter, and a year later began a career on the side as a singer with the Motown subsidiary VIP. He first became acquainted with the UK charts in 1968 when Got to See Jane, a tune he wrote with Eddie Holland, got to number 17 in August of that year. After taking a break from singing to co-write Love Child and I'm Living in Shame for Diana Ross and the Supremes, he resumed his solo career in 1970 when he became one of the first artists to sign to Rare Earth, Motown's white rock label, and this is its first single and it's got up 10 places this week from number 30 to number 20. What's Motown playing at round about this time? It's relocating to Los Angeles and Ooh. it's it's setting up stuff on the side. It, what, what's going on there? They're diversifying.
3: Yeah, I, I was in the Motown Museum last year and there's yes. a whole section on Rare Earth, um, which, as you say, is, is the subsidiary that uh, Barry Gordy set up for white artists. Although um, in the UK, I noticed they didn't bother with that. Uh, this single's on Tamla Motown in the UK. Um, but yeah, uh, they had another um, subsidiary... I, top of my head I can't remember the name but um they used it for putting out kind of political like spoken words of black power speeches and stuff like that so they were really branching out uh around this time and also um you've got to remember even on sort of Motown proper this is the era of the auteur so you know as as epitomized by Marvin Gaye what's going on and, and obviously that whole run of Stevie Wonder self-made albums so accordingly with that um the, the album that this is from, the Ardeen Taylor album, uh, he he wrote most of his own stuff and produced this album. Uh, it's called I Think Therefore I Am. And, yeah, it's 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 country pop, really, isn't it? So out out of keeping with the normal Motown fare, but um it's Barry Gordy reaching out beyond uh, their usual market and just, at least in this case, quite successfully, you've got to say.
4: Well, this is an ideal record for a white Motown subsidiary because it's commercial white soul in the same way that the best Black Motown acts were a, a popped up version of soul and gospel music. Uh, I mean becoming a bit less popped up by this point maybe but this is like a commercial version of the kind of white guy equivalent right like stuff like Neil Young and Hank Williams and like unfunky white soul music do you know what I mean like soulful white mm. yeah. music but zapped yeah. with pop and made danceable and radio friendly you know without sacrificing all the feeling and it's not easy to do that it's tricky which is mm. why people admire Motown for doing it um and Ardine Taylor does the same thing uh with the, the music uh of his own background um and I think this is an amazing record I think it's better than there's a ghost in my house wow uh, that's big talk well, because that's essentially an R&B record, which you always suspect would have sounded even better if it had been done by a black singer. Yeah, you could um, hear the
3: Isley Brothers doing that or something, Yeah, you? Yeah.
4: Whereas mm. this sounds really natural and fresh and his own, you know, and the extreme dramatics of the lyric and the delivery are set off against this really steady movement in the music where... You get a sense of rising tension, but also there's like a weird martyr's rapture to it when the police catch up with him at the end because, mm. you know, he's on the run. He's killed this bloke to protect his lady's mm. honour. Uh, now he's he's looking at... Yeah, that's, that's a bit off, isn't it? Just
2: killing a bloke for... what? Presumably slagging off his misses.
4: Yeah, because we get that right at the start. Because
3: uh, we're going to talk about the video in a minute, I'm sure. But, um, but the, I, I uh, think the, Kenny Rogers had a stronger
2: case. In <laughs> yeah, yeah. The counter
3: because uh, um, uh, we'll talk about the video in full, I'm sure. But uh, there's oh, yes. that FBI form that we see at the start that says Mm. a man is wanted for assault with the intent to commit murder. And in the lyrics, we hear RD's explanation. If a man ever needed dying, he did. No one had a right to say what he said about you. And I'd love to know what this guy said that was so bad that Mm. it justified attempted murder, you know, rather than just, like, punching him or something. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it goes beyond just spilling a pint or something, doesn't it? I mean, what on earth?
2: You don't know what Ardeen's like, though, when he's angry. Ah. Uh, uh, it's just we? the booze. No, he goes full, you know.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but th- this is why I was surprised to hear Taylor call it a soul record, because to me it is a country record, not just mm. in the kind of cadences of the melody, but um, just that that um, the drama that, that you mentioned there and the fact that it's a narrative, it's a story about... You know, a, a fugitive on the run for somebody he's killed or nearly killed. And that that's mm. classic kind of country oh, yeah. stuff. Right, like but it's, it's got is, that
4: yeah. finger-snapping beat underneath it and that sort of emotional delivery, which is different from a country singer's emotional delivery. Mm. It's got this sort of um, kind of plaintive, soulful way of singing, which is uh, not in a country... Just, it's not a sort of nose-pinching whine, you know. Um mm. It's obviously been informed by Motown. Uh, It's what makes it so good, I think, because it's uh, the combination works really well. But I just I love the way that at the end of this record, as the cops are closing in on him and he's he's looking at twenty to ten in the pen, Um, there's a kind of twisted elation to it. Do you know what I mean? It's like that sort of like it's like he's fucking Jesus or something. It's like you know I'm gonna going to get my come comeuppance there but he's like he's uh the strings start to swell up and it's like uh you know it's like a, a a religious moment for him you know it's great and yeah. the, the production of this record is amazing as well it's so up front and perfectly compressed right the music is dead simple there's nothing to it so you have to get the production and the performance just right um and they do it's like the music so yeah it sounds like it's three inches from your face and you can't ignore it you know what i mean it's really bold and moving um and i can't imagine how anyone could ever dislike this record
2: let me let me just step in there taylor because we all <laughs> used to go to second hand record shops in the mid 80s to you know to to pull out loads of the old shit because we'd had enough of the new shit. And, you know, I fucking love There's a Ghost in My yeah. House. Yeah. And I'd look at this single and go, oh, it's him, it's that bloke. And and the, the song title, Indiana Wants Me, it's like, oh, my God, that's a fucking brilliant name for something. And I could just imagine it in my head. And I took it home expecting another stomper, and it's like, oh, what the fuck is this? This is fucking dad music, this is. <laughs> hated it hated it hated yeah. it yeah. and uh you know it's only now that i can listen to it and go oh yeah th- this is all right if it had been done by anyone else i'd have liked it yeah but... it could be
3: done by david soul or something like that it makes yes. it makes me think of silver lady this whole thing about being far yes. away from home and far away from the woman you want to be with yeah that no kind star of thing. motels
4: yeah 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 when when mm. the names uh holland and Dozier drop off the songwriting credits, uh, R. Dean Taylor's yes. music does change quite dramatically. Um, mm. I mean, there's a lot of other mm. stuff from around this time where he sounds like a sort of Motowned up Gene Pitney, you know what I mean? Which is yeah. Yeah. Uh, almost as great as it sounds. But this is the one which really stands alone, I think. Shadow is a good one, isn't it? Yeah. Y- Shadow fucking hell. Yet another creepy hell. underage sex anthem to put alongside all the others from this period. Gary Puckett. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a uh, spoonful, uh Rolling Stones, Roy Hart. Shadow's
3: a kind of Humbert Humbert style it's sort of nonce narrative, isn't it? It goes body of a woman, mind of a child, and, and it goes uh, Shadow, you sure do drive me wild, you're only fourteen yeah. years old. Which, you know, in the context of uh, what we've just been talking about, bloody hell. But it's actually a good record. <laughs> it's it's got a kind of um uh Neil Diamond, girl you'll be a woman soon feel to it yeah. i think you know mm. which again you know this is what most but, of our
4: yeah. dean taylor's other stuff sounds like it's got that feel to it you know got to see jane and all that
3: so we're going to talk about this film then we're treated
2: to a, another homemade top of the pops film which mm. uh always interesting and uh, particularly well it, it's always when it's an american record so uh
3: how do you think they've got on with this one <laughs> It looks like they've had a decent budget, like not massive, but moderate budget. Even mm. if it's mostly just a man running across muddy terrain. The thing yeah, is, a, uh, it's, it's, it's it's meant yeah, it's meant to evoke America, but there's just something about the the mud and the grass and the trees and everything that just
4: looks like yeah. Britain. Yeah. Uh, yeah, specifically Wales, don't you think? You
3: think uh, maybe? I wonder,
4: North Wales,
3: yeah.
2: I thought because of the quarry, it was the same location as um, You Are Everything and Everything Is You video.
3: Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. could be.
2: Yeah. But, you see, I've got I've got me nuts in May head on again because, you know, you know I speculated that it was filmed near Stairhole. Well, I'm thinking it's, you know, it,
3: this is set in that quarry where um, they were going to make a little post office, Candice Marie. <laughs> you got a lot of Doctor Who stuff filmed in quarries as well. So, you know, there's always that. Yeah. Um, and I yeah, I looked into it uh in in the closing credits we, we find out that it was directed by Tom Taylor of Caravel Films. Mm-hmm. So I, I looked them up and uh, they're a company from Slough, funnily enough, uh um just down the road Whoop. from the technical training college. Um they they did several of these special films for Top of the Pops, it seems, including um Joy to mm-hmm. the World by Three Dog Night, um Let's Work oh, Together yeah. by Canned Heat. Silver Machine by Hawkwind and Back Off Boogaloo. Oh, I'd love to Back see Off that. Back Off by Ringo Starr um, and Tom Taylor himself had worked on some fairly minor uh, feature films like uh, the Michael Caine vehicle Deadfall and uh, another one called The Adding Machine. But he was mostly just doing title sequences. Um, but in right. in the film, right, um, the uh, the fugitive gives himself up. Um, but on the record. Mm. Well, it depends which version of the record. But on the record, he dies in a hail of bullets, and and this, this got me wondering: has any recording artist other than Ardeen Taylor died in two police chases? Because um, on on um, <laughs> on "Gotta See Jane," uh, it's implied because he's driving in the rain, there are sirens heard, and it ends with crashing sounds. Right, but uh, on "Indiana right. Wants Me," it's more explicit. Uh, so he he loves um, mm. a fatal police chase. Does there's R. Dean um, but yeah. um, by the way according to Wikipedia there was a bit of a War of the Worlds situation with this because the the, um, the police siren sounds uh, siren yeah removed from the, the the DJ copies that were sent out because uh, drivers kept hearing it and thinking it was real and they were sort of pulling over their cars oh but like blockbuster yeah 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 yeah, because yeah, the blockbuster say, in the States with that, yeah. yeah totally
4: the trouble with this video is that because of the location and because of the guy they've chosen <laughs> to play the fugitive, yeah. it, it doesn't yeah. really have the sort of uh, manly drama of the record. It looks like yeah. a provincial polytechnic lecturer fleeing a torchlit gang of angry parents across <laughs> the North Wales country. Yes. yes. Yeah. Abuse of trust is a bourgeois concept. You know, yeah, but it's which <laughs> would have worked as a video for Shadow, funnily enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, at the end, when he gets cornered by the forces of law and order, um, I'm wondering if he might get off on the technicality that the motorcycle cop isn't wearing the right jacket, and the detective <laughs> has got a long raincoat and a trilby hat and dark glasses, like a cartoon of a spy. Um, and he's also got a yeah. fluffed out hippie beard and long hair that he's trying to hide by putting his chin down. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Also, they've got the kind of guns that you shoot clay pigeons with, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, might not. <laughs> uh... Yeah, at least it's not Zed cars, yeah. though. And also, this, this <laughs> video slightly misunderstands the concept of being on the run. Right. It doesn't literally run in literally (laughs) running across open country. Right. It's more like a prison break. You know, they put prisons on a moor, partly so it's hard to run away from them because you're easy to find. The guy in this song is a fugitive, which is not the same thing. So there's no reason for him to find the most exposed landscape that he can and run across it. Yeah. That's a really stupid thing to do.
2: Yeah what he wants to be doing is is being on a bike with uh, Richard Beckinsale <laughs> and uh, make noises about his upcoming fight. That's how you escape from prison. Yeah, I mean
4: he's a, he's an amateur fugitive basically. Yeah. No wonder he gets caught. He might as well have uh, he might as well have gone on the the track of the Indianapolis 500 and started doing star jumps. You know, he's a bit <laughs> bit conspicuous. But, uh,
2: the one thing that's missing from that film is Malcolm McDonald suddenly turning up at the end with a fishing rod and a what, and his Party 7. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, the following week, Indiana Wants Me jumped another 8 places to number 12, and a month later, it went all the way to number 2, held off the top spot by Knock 3 Times by Dawn. The follow-up... Taos, New Mexico failed to chart in 1972, but he'd land one more UK hit in 1974 when a tuning recorded in 1967, There's a Ghost in My House, was re-released and got to number three in June of that year. From the Once again, Tony Blackburn is deliberately being kept off our screens as we crash straight into a very abrupt introduction to Henry Ford by The Mixtures. Formed in Melbourne in 1965, The Mixtures were signed to EMI Australia a year later and released three singles, all of which failed to chart in their motherland. They then signed to CBS Australia in 1969, which resulted in two more flop singles and appeared to be destined to be another Aussie-also-ran band who couldn't score a hit in their own country whose chart was dominated by British and American acts. However... After signing to Fable Records in 1970, the Australasian Performing Right Association, which represented the major labels of that country, started demanding payment from Australia's main commercial radio stations, claiming that they were providing free content. This resulted in the record label slapping a six-month embargo on the supply of records to commercial stations and the commercial stations refusing to play all British and American singles and removing them from their charts. This led to a boom in homegrown bands and artists, with Australian acts vomiting out cover versions of the latest hits from abroad. And one of those bands were the Mixtures, who jumped on a cover of Mungo Jerry's In The Summertime, which got to number one in August of that year and stayed there for nine weeks. In late 1970, they followed up with a song of their own, the Pushbike song, which not only got to number two in Australia after the ban on foreign airplay was lifted, but also got to number two over here for four weeks in February of this year, held off number one by George Harrison's My Sweet Lord, and is still in the charts this week at number 35. This encouraged the band to get on a plane and decamp to the UK for the spring where they gave a sorted interview slagging off the Australian music scene and here they are to promote their latest single, which has just been rushed down. Now, before we go any further, chaps,
3: let's discuss the Pushbike song. Well, the thing with the Pushbike song is that um, it sounds exactly like In the Summertime by Mungo Jerry, right? And I didn't know that mm-hmm. whole backstory that you just uh, told us. So yeah, so there's a no reason it? why it sounds exactly like uh, In the Summertime, mm. because they'd had a huge hit with it. They're shaking Mungo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they're basically thinking, oh, shit, we've had a massive hit with actual In the Summertime. Uh, we better give the world another thing that's a bit like that. And it paid off yeah. first time, at least, but not second time the pushbite song was an
2: absolute banger at the Westglade Junior School end of term discos of the late oh, 70s yeah. oh yes fucking hell man it was that
3: not three times return to sender Chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap. You should do a night sometime. You should do a night in a pub in Nottingham playing songs that were big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah
2: because what me and my mates would do, uh, well, first of all, we'd go to the toilets and um, put paper towels down the plug holes of the sinks and fill up the sinks and then just throw water over our faces and under our armpits to make it look as if we'd been sweating Christ. out of all the <laughs> dance floor action. And then, you know, Push Bite song would come on and, you know, just it just went off. Uh, we invented a dance you, you know the bit where it goes, tss, ooh, ooh, tss, ah. We kind of like did a dance to that, which involved pretend shitting and pissing. <laughs> it actually got the record banned <laughs> by, by the end of my uh, time at Westglade Junior <laughs> School. That's amazing. But uh, this, however, is no push song, is it? No. no,
3: I mean, you know, like, like I said earlier, this is a very banjo-heavy Top of the Pops. It's as if 1971 yes. was the international year of the banjo. But... Um, <laughs> but the mixtures couldn't hit a cow's ass with theirs in terms of scoring a second British hit, because uh, this didn't chart, uh, despite the extreme efforts that the BBC have gone to here, yes, uh, to help them.
4: Oh, what was this, with this yeah. video clip? Yeah, yeah. It's like I mean, they. I think they spent all of the money on the Indiana Wants Me video clip <laughs> shot on film. I, yes. I mean, this is. I've. I've bought products with the brand name Best In that cost more than this video clip. <laughs> I
2: mean, they're in, a, they're in a yellow vintage car. They're crammed in. They've got the drum kit at the back, and uh, you know they've got the guitars and basses poking out and everything. And is uh, it been chroma keyed onto yeah. uh, a background of of traffic oh, scene, yeah. or is it? A, oh. Because at some point, it, because it's got a black border around it, it looks like they've just put a, pro- a projector behind yeah. them. But it is it is chroma keyed because you can see their hair being
3: all unnecessarily frizzy, even for the early nineteen seventies. Yeah, yeah a, sometimes a good good their, their, their limbs disappear. Yeah, mm. um, I mean, so we're all thinking the same thing, right? When they're in mm. the yellow vintage car, because yes. you've, you've got first of all, you assume it's Bessie. The, the car from Doctor Who, right? Because yeah. uh, Bessie was a Seaver Edwardian, which is um, a faux vintage car, which is built on the chassis of a 1950s Ford Popular. So it's the car equivalent mm. of a mock Tudor house, if you get my meaning. But So um, <laughs> Bessie first appeared in the uh, Doctor Who and the Silurians episode in 1970, driven by John Pertwee. Uh, that's when the Doctor's stranded on Earth because uh, he's been exiled by the Time Lords uh, without the use of his TARDIS, right? Uh, and mm. I thought, great, this is amazing. We're seeing the, doc- you know, seeing the, the Doctor Who car on top of the pops. Um, but here's the problem. It's, and it, I, it's really sad to report this, but I, I freeze framed the mixtures. And then I did a Google image search and carefully uh, compared the two. Sadly, it's not Bessie. It's, it's a slightly different yeah. model. So, which is in its way even more bizarre because this means the BBC owned two bright yellow Seaver Edwardian f- faux vintage cars. Yeah. And we wonder why Britain suffered an economic collapse in the 70s. Uh. And oh, the thing with the green screen footage is that the possibilities yeah. surely are kind of endless. And instead, they start yeah. off... <laughs> Stop. Yes. It, looks, it looks like they're driving across Blackfire's Bridge in the rain. Um, yeah, it, it looks, looks horrible, and, doesn't it? And then, it? then it, uh, there's the verse that mentions flying, and we get, I wonder, right, is, is this the first sighting of that montage of flying machines and other sort of steampunky it contraptions? Be, you know. yeah. it, it, it ended up on Steve Silk Hurley's Jack Your Body and countless yes. other things. Well,
4: between, between 1970 and... 1990 the BBC must have showed these clips more often than the globe they're like it's (laughs) they're so delighted oh great it's those flying those shit flying machines like not taking off and the wings are collapsing and all of that yeah they do change
3: it up eventually to be fair there's some crashing waves in the background which is a kind of surreal and then you've got crashing Mm. mob you know, cars from uh, mob movies or something. Uh, which yeah. is fair enough. It's uh, sort of a Californian road in the evening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, which is a lot nicer. And then, and then they go into the sea
2: where this song firmly belongs.
4: <laughs> but surely, some of those clips must be actual deaths caught on film. Yes, oh.
2: exactly what I was thinking uh, when I was watching it, man. Yeah. Right at the end, where there's them three car crashes, right. no one skipped out of that and brushed down their uh, bowler hat and toddled off.
4: Yeah, especially, especially not in those like 1920s cars that were not known for their safety records. No, I mean, there's no airbags in that. No. It, and so you see that, have a good old chuckle, and then cut back to these grinning Antipodean oafs in their stupid gel.
2: Yeah, faces of death. Deaths from the past are funny, yeah. aren't they?
4: What is it? These, these guys are too old to matter now, they they don't exist.
3: Yeah, but the, the song's fucking awful, well, isn't it? Though? Yeah, I was just distracted the whole time by how much the singer Terry Dean reminds me of Noel Fielding. Yeah. But it is an awful song, it's got nothing.
4: The thing about Australia, it's like, it's a weird country where someone took like a freeze-dried version of early 50s English suburbia and plonked it down in the middle of a, a blasted sun-scorched alien landscape (laughs) full of freaky plants and nightmarish psychotic wildlife Mm. um, with a sort of weird inbuilt pre-assigned settler versus transportee conflict between like a egalitarian mates culture and on the other hand the very worst kind of lily-white entitled racist Christian snobbery. And mm. when you take that strange society and environment and you put it on a drip feed of modern Western culture, including rock and roll, you do get some extraordinary popular art. Not very much because there's not, not very many people there, but enough to put Australia probably about fourth or fifth on the list of countries which have produced the most great pop culture, specifically music. Mm. I mean, behind Britain and usa but probably battling it out with germany and jamaica mm. for the bronze perhaps uh but all the great work from australia reflects where it came from to some degree right like the weird nature of the culture and the mm. landscape and the specific tensions arising from that it's there in the birthday party and nick cave and the Seeds. it's there in the go-between certainly the early stuff um and it's It's at the very heart of the finest piece of modern Australian art, which is the original film of Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is a masterpiece for all time and could only be Australian. And I'm not really feeling this with the mixtures, (laughs) right? So they might have impressed Molly or whatever that bloke's name is. Molly Muldrum. Yeah, but is this not buttering many parsnips back in the home country? Back in the mother country, is it? No. It's like this is coming straight from the other Australia, like the white bread Australian dream, you know, like mm. the neighbour's aesthetic, which is the least interesting yeah. thing about that weirdo place, you know. Yeah, mighty all? white. Yeah, I mean, it's they saw a gap in the market, which was mungo jerry for the under 10s, <laughs> yeah. and congratulations, cobbers, you did it, you know, mm. great. Now you've got to spend the rest of your life feeling proud of yourself. yeah. But it's weird because they do a song about Henry Ford, good old Henry Ford, right? Yeah. Like all the mixtures were long-time subscribers to the Dearborn Independent and had (laughs) first editions of his essay collection, The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem, as it was syndicated (laughs) to the German market in the 1930s. An ideal figure for an uncomplicated celebration in song. (laughs) I mean, yeah. The only interesting thing about them is that they only wrote songs about modes of transport as well, (laughs) which is really peculiar. So
2: the following week, and for every week after that, Henry Foyle failed to chart and only got to number 43 in Australia, where their UK interviews had eventually arrived in the music press and were not appreciated. After one more hit in their home country and myriad lineup changes the band finally split up and were on their bike in
1: 1979. He stopped the world
0: the sound of Henry Ford from the mixers. Right now it's time for a touch of glamour. And here comes Pans People to dance to the number 28 sound. Mama's Bell from the fabulous Jackson Five. <laughs>
2: Again, no on-screen Tony action. What the fuck's going on there? They're going straight from one act to the other without giving us the benefit of seeing Tony grinning in
3: Aynley. Yeah, I noticed this. It's, it's basically not right, is it? For for most of the show, really, Blackburn is a is an unseen continuity announcer. Yeah, which is an odd editorial decision. And I again, I wonder if there was something. This was something to do with playing things very, very safe. Um, in the light of the the, the scandal that, that broke, I think um, we
2: saw something quite similar in the nineteen seventy episode, didn't we, Taylor?
4: Um, they
2: just go straight to
4: yeah. There was a bit of that, but I mean they took, yeah. they took more chances with. I mean, Top of the Pops became conveyor belt TV a bit later in the seventies, and mm. uh, you know there was a format and they did it the same every week. You know, uh, for years at a time, they took a lot more chances in these days, like in terms of direction and editing and all sorts. Mm.
3: The other thing about Blackburn here, and this is, you know, you could have said this about pretty much any Top of the Pops that he presented. He talks uh, in sort of famously transatlantic, sort of semi-American yes. accent. And I just wondered if maybe uh, the game was up for him when Kid Jensen turns up. Because, mm. you know, all right, Kid Jensen's Canadian, <laughs> but, you know, basically North American. And in, in a way that it wasn't necessarily with Emperor Roscoe, because Emperor... Um, you know, British... Yeah, 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 yeah. All of that, that yeah. sensational, all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, I think I, I wonder if, if Jensen kind of in in Jensen's very gentle and, and gentlemanly like way just blew Blackburn out mm. of the water. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say in, in in the next link, uh, he puts on a, a comedy Northern accent. Yes. Uh, he what's does, up yes. with that? Um, they and this is such a seventies thing, such a yeah. Top of the Pops thing. DLT does it more than most, ad- yeah. ad- admittedly. But what? Yeah. Why? Why does? Um, breaking into a northern accent for a few words instantly yeah. equal funny. I don't get it. Yeah, but it it seems to be a trope of British British sort of light entertainment for, for forever. Yes. I yeah. I I just don't get it. That it's it's like in uh, in the absence of a punchline or any kind of humour or any kind of gag whatsoever, go northern and people will ch- will chuckle.
2: Yeah. Fuck off. So he introduces "Mama's Pearl" by the Jackson Five. We've already discussed the Jackson 5 in chart music number 10 and this single, their fifth, was the first Jackson 5 record not to get to number one in America having to make do with number two behind a song that they originally turned down, One Bad Apple by the Osmonds. It's the follow up to I'll Be There, which spent five weeks at number five and eventually got to number four in January of this year and was originally called Guess Who's Making Whoopie With Your Girlfriend before it was completely rewritten by the corporation, the songwriting team led by Barry Gorday. After entering the top 30 last week, it's actually dropped three places from number 25 to number 28 this week. But here come an excessively hot panted up to fuck pants people to save the day. Before we go into the song chats, we
3: need to have a discussion about hot pants. Yeah, they're in a right quality street assortment of them here, aren't mm. they? All, yes, they colors, are. Shiny hot pants and uh Plunging crop tops to go with them. And yes. um, matching knee-high boots, I noticed. They, they haven't gone for some, some chaotic colour scheme with those. But this is the, this is the age of the hot pants. Yeah, I guess it is.
2: Hot pants first came to the attention of the general public in October of 1970, when an article in the fashion pages of the Daily Mirror said, short skirts may be having a rough ride at the hands of the midi merchants, but leg fanciers around the world will take on a new lease of life when they hear about mini shorts. Tommy Roberts, the owner of the Mr. Freedom boutique, said, shorts will take over where the mini skirt left off. After all, girls still want to show off their legs, don't they? I don't know if he spoke like that. But I bet he did. By like the spring of 1971 rolled round, the legs of the shorts moved higher and higher and the papers went absolutely fucking mental over the rebranded hot pants. And so did the people of
4: Pan. <laughs> See, anyone who doubts that the 70s were in full flow this early in the decade Mm. you just need to look at this clip right because not only is this um, version of female glamour quite Mm. obviously different from uh, the sort of skinny blank faced mannequin dancers of the 60s you know with their stripy jackets and little caps and stuff and downturned mouths it's also not the the stern aerobicised Aventis hardness of legs and co right this is uh, a very particular kind of earthy flashy unsophisticated joy which characterizes um, a lot of low culture of the early 70s and I think it's unmistakably from that time period there's nothing remote or unhealthy about these people and they don't look like they've been trained to within an inch of their lives in a in a dance dungeon and and they're not stopping to admire themselves in a mirror or analyze anything they're doing you know they Mm. they they've worked hard but it hasn't squashed the basic joy of youthful movement you know and music going through you yeah and they know that they're the most lusted after women in Britain, but at this stage, that's still seen as a cause for celebration as opposed to uh, an invasion of psychological space. Um, although this is one of the least expressive routines we've seen from Pan's people, um, probably the closest to simply lining them up mm. to be leered at. There's, it, it, do you know what I mean? They're not really... There's not a lot to this routine other than the hot pants. I disagree.
3: Um, I, I agree with everything you're saying up, up to that point when you were talking about them uh, not looking like they've been schooled within an inch of their lives uh, uh, and although they have clearly put hard work in. But I actually thought the routine was quite, was first of all, thought it was quite good but um, I thought it was quite complex. Um, there, there, there are a lot of different moves in there. Um, there's, there's no audience so um, they've taken as long as they like to film it, I guess. There are quite a few cut yeah. points I noticed, so they fairly yeah. clearly filmed it in chunks to get it all to get it all perfect. Mm. Um I wondered if maybe they had a bit more time mm. than than usual to do that. But um the the sense in which I agree with Taylor is that um, they don't feel robotic when they're doing all these moves. You know, it's yeah. it's all it's all stitched together in the edit. But um you know I I think uh it's they look they look free in their movements, mm. but but there's a lot going mm. on. Yeah, I mean it does look it does look route one at first. Well, when, when you just see all their asses yeah. lined up, but
2: I'm I'm guessing that pants people welcomed. Uh, the introduction of hot pants because they could wear something short, but they didn't have to worry about flashing the drawers. Yep. <laughs> there's
3: a song in there somewhere as well. Should we talk about that? The song is "Shaking I Want You Back," isn't it? Yeah, mm. you know, uh, right down to that bit at the end. Go what you need that bit? Yeah. You know, uh, but the Jackson 5's writers were knocking them out like nobody's business yeah. at this point. Five straight number ones in America. Yeah. Um, the corporation you mentioned, so as Barry Gordy. Um, Alfonso uh, Mizell Freddie Perrin and Deke Richards great names Um, Mm. but my my favourite of that run uh, of theirs is The Love You Save I got so obsessed with The Love You Save um, a while ago I just sort of kept playing it six times Mm. in a row Uh, (laughs) this one um, Mama's Pearl not so I'm nothing wrong with it it's got that it's brilliant it's still brilliant it's still great I mean but you know huge in America number two in America not so huge here I think it was number 25 um but you, you can you can see... I, I would say you can see why it didn't catch on quite quite so much over here because, I, like I say, I do think it is shaking I Want You Back.
4: It's definitely the point where the law of diminishing returns begins to set in for the Jackson 5. I mean, it's recognisable as a brilliant record as long as you don't play mm. it within an hour or two of yeah. I Want You Back or ABC, mm-hmm. you know, because then you realise yeah. it's just the same brilliant record again but just a little bit less brilliant. I mean... Not that that was uncommon with Motown, you know, and very forgivable, but there was just something of the lightning strike about those Jackson 5 records. And rehashing them just isn't quite as easy as doing the same thing to Where Did Our Love Go or I Can't Help Myself, you know. Um, And in fact, it took the Jacksons about another six years to even get close to that original greatness again, didn't it? Once that initial flame blew out, uh, it, it all went a bit quiet for a, for a, a while with them. Yes, but it still sounds like it's being beamed in from a better planet. Yes, when you yes. put it next to most of the music on this program, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like it's often the case with these early seventies records. There's a lot of uh, holiday camp shit going on, you know, from, on the British side, and then suddenly a black American act turns up, and everybody else looks irredeemably square. You know, although the Jacksons were as square as they come in many ways, but they don't sound it, especially as this is one of those songs pleading for a girl to give up her virginity, which, <laughs> considering Michael is about thirteen at this point, is a a bit eyebrow raising. But you know, maybe we've seen nothing yet.
3: If that younger, I think I don't know. Yeah, you're right, you
2: might I'm be right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, the following week, Mama's Pearl nudged up one place to number 27, but then slid down the charts. The follow-up, the original version of Never Can Say Goodbye, only got to number 33 for three weeks in August of this year, but made it to number two again in America. But the follow-up to that, looking through the windows, made it all the way to number nine in December of 1972. Oh, and... uh, Uh, Have we seen Leaving Neverland?
4: Yes. No, I haven't. Well, um, obviously it's extremely plausible uh, Mm. that all this stuff is true because we know for sure that Michael Jackson's a terrible fuck-up in a grotesque and potentially dangerous way. And it's not as if he's only been accused of this once. Uh, But at the same time... I still think it's vaguely distasteful to speculate uh, in public on the truth or otherwise of accusations that haven't and can't be proven. I mean, you could do it in the pub. I mean, if you gave me six gin and tonics, I would tell you whether I think Michael Jackson was a child molester, right? Very freely. But I don't even feel good about doing it on here, you know. I don't like the idea, or what it is, it's more that I don't like the idea that people think it's fine to do that, right? To come down on one side or the other, either because they love Michael Jackson's music and they don't want to believe it, or because they watched a documentary and said, oh, that must be the truth, listen to the sad piano music. Yeah. You know
2: what I mean? Yeah, I've, I've seen one or two clips and it is festooned with home and away incidental music.
4: yeah. I mean, on the one hand, something ungodly was clearly taking place. And let's face it, when choosing his innocent, prepubescent playmates, Michael wasn't picking out no ugly kids, right? Mm. On the other hand, you know, I don't know, the fact that he was repeatedly acquitted of something while alive does not count for nothing, even if it doesn't Mm. count for much. So, I don't know, I just, I don't like to... uh, I don't like to talk about this stuff as though I was there or as though I was an authority, you know, mm. which I think this uh, people feel very free about doing that de- these yeah. days. It makes me really uncomfortable. I mean, to the point where Radio 2 have stopped playing his music, right? That's what they said. Mm. Uh, which, I mean, look, if tomorrow Adele walked into a, a chip shop with a submachine gun and took out 30 people... You wouldn't want or expect Radio 1 to be playing Hello at five past eight the following morning. (laughs) But, you know, if it came out tomorrow that Mozart was a serial killer, would that matter? I don't know. I don't understand the way people think of time or the weird mental relationship they believe they have with artists. I don't know. It's a mystery to me. At the end of the day, it's just you, an individual, uh, inside your headphones, listening to sound, so it's a mystery to me.
3: Yeah, well, um, I've I've discussed uh, Jacko on a previous chart music with with Sarah. Yes, um, and you know we went into quite a lot of depth at that time. Um, the thing that gets me about uh, f- um, leaving Neverland, not having watched it, but just the kind of reaction to it, and I've mm. I've been paying fairly scant attention to it. I've got to be honest, but it's just um, I found it really odd seeing all these people suddenly acting completely shocked like oh my god what michael jackson's a massive nonce who knew Mm. you know as if this is somehow
4: brand new information yeah that happened with savile as well though, didn't it you remember
3: i'd say i'd say it's different bit of a difference there i think i'd say it's different because you know for the last 20 years or whatever there have been these these stories about jacko they're the well publicized
0: there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care
3: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Court cases. Surely, mm. um, everybody has already got... There's enough stuff already, in the uh, rumours and fact in the public domain, that if people were, were going to sort of say, oh, my God, he's cancelled, he's done, they would have done so by now. Where have these people been living, you know, hiding under a rock? Or, or are they sort of like, you know children barely born themselves when all this was going on. Mm. It's quite possible that this documentary and, and these um, allegations within it um, aren't anything particularly new. Um, no. uh, I, I don't know, but that, that's kind of the impression I get, that it's kind of more of the same, but it's it's the uh, the, the accusers actually speaking out. Um, but, yeah, I, I just find it odd that, that, that it's taken this to tip a load of people over the edge. Like, mm. like oh, what? No, no one told me. Come on. You know yeah. so if uh, everybody seems to have, um, either made their peace with jacko and his music over the last couple of decades or they haven't and i i'm just a bit kind of um i mean maybe i need to watch it to see what all the fuss is about but the idea mm. that you know people are, are, are only now um deciding oh you know what uh maybe we shouldn't play his music on radio too are you still playing his music what in my dj set yeah absolutely really? yeah yeah mm. yeah totally um I mean, and I'll, I'll continue to do so. You um, had mean, any it, comeback of that? Well, I mean, I haven't DJed out since uh, this ah. documentary. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if things have changed. But, um, you know, I, I I did a club just a couple of months ago playing big sort of uh, mainstream 80s music, and I played, uh, you know, two or three Jacko songs, um, and no one had any problem with that. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if if suddenly everyone's given it some kind of... Um, uh, I, I, I was going to say uh, Edvard Munch uh, shock face, but maybe uh, Macaulay Culkin would be uh, the, you know, the, yes. the the opposite comparison when uh, when I do it.
4: Well, you know, what, what we need to remember, though, is that there may well have been a perfectly innocent reason why he set up a system of bells uh, as an advance warning alarm so that when someone was approaching the room in which he liked to sleep in a bed with angelic prepubescent boys. He knew they were coming several minutes in advance. It was a big room, though.
3: <laughs> also, there's this whole thing, you know, if if we're particularly talking about Jackson 5 records, he was a child when he made mm. these records. Yes. Yeah. All of this stuff was far, far in the future. He made th- These records, they are cultural artefacts of a place and a time. They exist, they're out there. Yeah. Uh, and logically it's almost impossible for them to be changed they they are a thing they exist in the world and yeah. and no, nothing that's happened since can, can alter them you know mm-hmm. it's, it's it's not even it's not even like like Morrissey where where you can think wait where, where you can say oh it's it spoils the Smiths for me because uh you know I, I can look back at his fondness for old England and think that there was something a bit more sinister underlying it than I really um, uh, realized at the time um you, you you can't now sure no one's listening to I want you back by the Jackson 5 and think that that 11-year-old boy is thinking I'm going to grow up to be a pedophile.
4: Yeah, the, do you know it, what I mean? This exposes the the uh, philosophical conundrum and just how weird all of this is that like say if, say if somebody is a child abuser to what extent would that retrospectively taint creative work they did when they were a child. Mm. Um, it sort of exposes the futility. Of the whole concept of uh, writing people's work out of history because of their personal crimes, it's like there's a disconnect between the artifact um, and the and the human, and that's that's never never clearer than uh, than in that case
3: yeah and you know we we all know people who are kind of separate the art from the artist fundamentalists and and i I always say that really everybody 's mileage might vary with that, and nobody's mm. entirely consistent there There are people who, who go at one extreme say that even allegations are enough you 're cancelled that 's it and then there are people who who really like to show off about how I how despise I people people who are really able people like, like to show off about how able they are. To separate the art from the artist at the other end, and, and, they, and they, they make a big point of saying, you know, I will unrepentantly uh, li- listen to absolutely anything by anyone. But in, in between that, I don't think anybody even has a line. It's it's a wobbly line. It's a mess. Um, but mm. yeah, given that that's the case, I, I think that um, records that were made way before the thing even happened are a, a special case compared to you know you, you, you could you could say that. Uh, somebody will um, still listen to a Morrissey record now and say, well, I don't really care what his politics are, it's just a good record. You know, that, that's yeah. a bit more kind of a, a sort of upfront, in-your-face art-artist separation because it's going on right now in this, exactly the same moment. But when there's decades of disconnect, then surely those records get a pass.
4: Well, you would think so. I mean, as a human being, you will listen to a record differently if it turns out that it was made by someone who, in whatever way, was a wrong one. Uh, differently, yeah. I don't understand. I genuinely don't understand the idea of I am never going to listen to this music ever again. You know.
2: Hot pants though, eh? Whoa. <laughs> oh, God's sake. Whoa. As for hot pants, they fell out of favour amongst the high fashion brigade at the end of the summer of 1971 in favour of the maxi dress and peasant couture, but they still hung in there around the ulcers of the youth right through the early 70s, including all three instalments of the On the Buses movie trilogy. (laughs) Oh, that that sacred Boxing Day ritual. Uh, And the final word on the matter, I I, I found an advert in the Daily Mirror uh, this month, uh, from Honey Styles of King's Cross which reads as follows Hot Pants £1.25 Girls we have the latest Hot Pants in Bonded Orion Crimpoline, Velvet Corduroy Wet Look and other materials from only £1.25 pound twenty-five. We also have a special range of hot pants to fit young ladies from the age of three. <sighs> Open brackets, they look delicious. <clears throat> Close brackets. Oh my
3: god, right, okay. D-
2: different <clears> throat> times. Throat>
0: I didn't tell pants people they could borrow my pairs of hot pants. Still, never mind. (laughs) Right now, here's Ringo Starr, filmed in Norway, and uh, let's listen to his brand-new hit record, number seven this week, and it's called It Don't Come Easy, up from 12 of last week. Going to be a big, big number one hit, this one.
2: On-screen Tony action, and we're whipped over to Scandinavia for what Tony
3: predicts is a future number one. It don't come easy, by Ringo Starr. He does a classic Blackburn thing because he goes, Mm. "I didn't tell them they could borrow my pairs of hot pants," and then he laughs at his own joke. That is so. That is such a classic Blackburn thing. Born in Liverpool in 1940, Richard Starker was
2: a former railway worker and waiter on a boat which made trips to North Wales before becoming the drummer with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes and changing his name to make it sound a bit more country and western. After a successful stint at the Fwelly Bucklins holiday camp, the band were invited to play a residency at the Kaiser Keller, where they enjoyed top billing over another Liverpool band, the Beatles. After joining Tony Sheridan's band for a brief period, he rejoined the Hurricanes for another buckling season and it was at Skegness where he was asked by John Lennon and Paul McCartney to join their band, which he did. Eight years later, and two months before the release of Let It Be, Ringo released his debut LP, Sentimental Journey, a covers LP, in March of 1970, and it was during those sessions that he recorded this song, which was mainly written by George Harrison. It's been held back for a year as Ringo's debut single. It entered the charts at number 29 two weeks ago, and it's up this week from number 12 to number 7. All four Beatles are in the charts at the moment, aren't they? There's another day at 19, Power to the People, number 21, and My Sweet Lord is still hanging in there at number 36. I mean, at the moment, George Harrison appears to be winning the battle of the Beatles, but Ringo's more than holding his own
4: on this showing. Yeah, well, this is the best of all those Beatles records that are in the charts at the time. Mm. And Ringo was by far the coolest Beatle in 1971, because he was the only one who wasn't trying too hard right like all the others were sort of making fools of themselves in one way or another to a greater or lesser degree because they don't know what to do outside the Beatles so Mm. Lennon's gone you know student political to try and justify his own existence and McCartney's going a bit mad because he can't believe it's over and he's making these empty but obsessively overworked records in a kind of grinning panic and George Harrison's just done all things must pass but he's put all his eggs in one basket and Mm. doesn't know that from now on it's like a a, a sort of ever dwindling stream of religious rock songs you know Uh, Mm. whereas Ringo doesn't give a fuck he's the one least equipped to deal with the breakup but he's cool Mm. he's just digging it he's making records with the same air of carefree gormlessness with which he seemed to play the drums, right? When you see him, he just—he's mm. just delighted to be drumming. He's just grinning and swinging his head around, and—and and it really works, you know. For as long as he's got a few good songs, you look at him here; he—he he looks great. He's pulling off that shoulder-length hair and beard combo, you know, in a way that mm. not that many people can do. He mm. comes across as an adult. He's got nothing to prove. He's just a likable thirty-one-year-old dude, you know. Before the yeah. drink kicks in, offering up this culturally meaningless but very enjoyable record.
3: Simon, as we all know, you you're a bit Beatle sceptic. I am a bit Beatle sceptic. Um but you know I, I wouldn't let that blind me to whether you know this is any good or not um mm. so blackburn incorrectly predicts uh, ringo will be number 1 at the start and the end although he hedges his bets mm. a bit doesn't he at the end by giving the rolling stones a chance too um i'm just amazed it was a hit at all because it's dog shit um right it's a bog standard bluesy chord structure no particular hook i'd say it's not even a song really and mm. you can whack as much echo on his voice as you like, he's no singer, um, so it, it actually got to number four, which astounds me. I mean, it, it was I think his first solo single, so I guess we can attribute it to to post Beatles goodwill. That doesn't explain why he's sort of doing so well in the charts compared to the other Beatles. It's okay. not as if he couldn't make decent records either, because back off Boogaloo was belter. Mm. Photograph, even better, photograph, is amazing, but for me, this is rancid reindeer bollocks.
4: <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I think I think people liked it at the time because it's one of the few early solo Beatles records which sounds as it would have sounded as a Beatles record, right? Because mm. it's got that George Harrison arpeggio guitar riff on it and um, Klaus Vormann playing bass not entirely unlike Paul McCartney and it's got the backing vocals by uh, Badfinger which is about as close as you get to the sound of the Beatles, you know, mm. back in vocals. And it's got those slightly outmoded lyrics about pieces, how we make it and all that sort of stuff. Uh, mm. Which is what we'd have got from the Beatles if they'd carried on. But also it's the same understanding of how a structure and layer and arrangement. So that even a nothing song like this sounds kind of rich and nourishing. Like those late pe- late period Beatles records, you know. Um, so I think you're right in that there's not much of a song here but I don't know that anyone was really listening to the song anyway
2: yeah I mean the media are are still refusing to believe that the Beaklers are gone for good Uh, there was a front page headline in the mirror the previous month claiming that Klaus Vormann's been drafted in to replace Paul it seems that a lot of people are going oh this is nice they're having a bit of a they're
4: on a break as Jeremy Carr would say yeah it's like the penny hadn't quite dropped yet that the no. Beatles were associated with the 60s. And that's, that was all they were going to be. I mean, if they if they had got back together, it would just have been, you know, double albums with overdone gatefold sleeves produced by Richard Perry. And, you know, it would have been all right. But it's, no, 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 leave it,
2: leave it. This song was actually on Top of the Pops a couple of weeks previously with a different film. It's essentially a colder version of uh, Ringo scene in A Hard Day's Night, isn't it? <laughs> He's just basically arsing around on his own.
4: Yeah, well, he was in in Norway already because he was filming a Scylla Black special. Right. Um, So while they were there with the BBC crew, Michael Hurl uh, went out and shot Uh this clip, which is completely needless because there was already a video for It Don't Mm. Come Easy. But... He just wanted to ask around with Ringo for the yeah, day, and, didn't he? Yeah, no, really, no oil crisis yet, so hang the yeah. expense. You know, get a helicopter, whatever. Fuck it, get a helicopter shot of Ringo just playing the piano in the snow. You know, who cares?
2: Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of him. I was going to say skiing, but it's more of him falling on his ass and getting his black flares all sodden, and uh, asking about on a yellow snowmobile, and yeah, playing playing the piano in the snow.
4: Yeah, he's got a primitive yeah. snowcat. It looks like a bumper car. And he's mm, driving it around looking really hungover, you know what I mean? Like No, <laughs> yeah. hang
3: on. A snow a snow cat is one of those ones with tracks.
4: Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, hang on, no, what's this? Is this? A, I can't remember. What's he got? It's,
3: it's it's a snowmobile, um, which is also known as a skidoo, but that's like a trade that's like Hoover, oh, you know, it's like right. a trade yeah. name that's become generic. Yeah. Okay. It's no banana splits though, is it? Oh, what is?
4: No, well it's partly because he doesn't <laughs> He, he doesn't convey the sense of madcap uh, funsterism. You know what I mean? Mm. He he's like, it was bloody cold. You know what I mean? He's yeah. uh, but also he's in a period where every moment is wasted when he's not behind a drum kit or a bottle. Yeah. you know. Yeah. So he does look like he wants to go back and sit by the fireplace with a nice nice brandy alexander yeah, yeah yeah
3: i like how uh, michael hurl who of course was later king of top of the pops um brought a scouser with him to help him because uh david spence <laughs> who edited this uh also worked on the liver birds so there's uh. a scouse connection right. but um, videos like this piss me off i'll be honest you know I, uh. I think i think they're made in in the assumption that we'll find their antics or their holiday footage delightful somehow mm. i i don't I just, you know, oh fuck yeah. off, and you know, I, I suppose. Even as I'm saying this, uh, I realise how ludicrous it is that I'm I'm uh, bringing up the plausibility or otherwise of what goes on in a music video. But why why is the piano in a field in a snowy field? Mm-hmm. That's never explained, really. Uh, the best, but bit just, in
4: some shots, it's uh, on wooden boards. And yes, some it isn't. So obviously they didn't put it on wooden boards and so then it started sinking. It started sinking.
3: <laughs> see,
4: that footage I would watch,
3: that's what I want to see. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Oh, and I like the opening shot as well because it's like from above and you see like him leaving this trail and it looks like he's drawn a massive knob in the snow. Right? <laughs> it's like, go on, Ringo, my son.
2: Um, what a shame he didn't make a Snow yeah. McCartney and then whack it with a cricket bat. <laughs>
4: I was reading an old uh, interview with Ringo the other day from the old mm. Beatles magazine from the 60s. Um yeah. And they went went to his house to do this interview, and it said, uh, hang on, it said, after wandering around the grounds, we walked back up to the house, and Ringo showed us his wood. And <laughs> I thought, wow, man, the 60s is a free and easy yeah. document. And then it said, that's enough questions, said Ringo, Let's have a cup of tea. And he disappeared out of the room to return a couple of minutes later with a tray, two cups, teapot, a bowl of sugar and a plate of munch mallows. Oh. <laughs> he wasn't even the biggest consumer of munch mallows in the Beatles. John <laughs> Lennon said that. Yeah. I always feel a bit bad because when, when we were about 16, me and my mate uh, were in London and we were really pissed and we went, thought we'd go and see Abbey Road Studios. Uh, mm. so we went there you know, just the outside and everyone scrawls all these messages of love yes. to the Beatles all over the wall um, and because we were drunk we wrote Ringo smells which I'm <laughs> sure he didn't <laughs> I bet he was aftershave from Monte Carlo you know and his breath smelled of polo mints to cover the scotch
2: so yeah. the following week it Don't Come Easy jumped three places to number four where it stayed for three weeks the follow up Back off Boogaloo, spent two weeks at number two in April of 1972, only denied its rightful place at number one by amazing grace by the pipes and drums of the military bands of the Royal Scots Dragoon Guard. And he'd have his fourth and final top ten hit on the bounce when you're 16... Got to number four in March of 1974. You're 16. You're
4: legal and you're mine. <laughs> oh my god!
3: <laughs> I've just realised why that video pisses me off. Right? It's because it reminds me of another video that pisses me off, which you know, people mucking around in the snow. It's the police to do 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 da da da. Uh... But maybe that's unfair because I could have thought yeah. of Wham! Last Christmas, and they're they're quite likeable, yes, but yeah, or Mariah Carey mm. for that matter. But yeah, in in it's, it's an early entry in the pop, st- rich, very rich pop stars larking around in the snow and showing us how rich they are, kind of genre.
0: Well, it's either Ringo Star or The Stones is going to get to the number one slot. I'd say here's a fabulous new record from Lulu, chart bound, and it's called Everybody Clap. Yeah.
1: Hey!
2: The distinct lack of an on-screen Tony continues as he backs away from his prediction of Ringo getting to number one and saying the Stones might instead, with Brown Sugar currently at number four. Neither of them did. He then introduces a tune he guarantees is chart-bound. Nope. Everybody Clap by Lulu. Born in Lennox Town, Stirlingshire in 1948, Marie Laurie grew up in Glasgow and at the age of 13, she responded to an advert put out by a local pub band called The Bell Rocks who were looking for a new singer and she appeared with them on Saturday night gigs. At the age of 15, she was picked up by her manager Marion Massey and signed to Decca and her debut single, a cover of the Isley Brothers' Shout, got to number seven in June of 1964. She racked up six more top 20 hits during the rest of the sixes, but by this point had gone two years since her last hit, Boom Bang A Bang, in 1969, although she scored a US number one that year with To Sir With Love. Nonetheless, she was a regular fixture on BBC One, hosting her own light entertainment show, which began in 1965. This song, the follow-up to Got To Believe In Love, which failed to chart despite getting plugged on top of the pops, was co-written with her husband, Morris Gibb, and it features Leslie Harvey of Stone the Crows and Gibb on guitar, Jack Bruce, formerly of Cream, on bass, and John Bonham on drums. And here she is in the studio with Pan's people yeah, pulling a double hard. shift. Fucking hell. Quite the lineup. Okay,
4: first of all, we've got to get this out of the way, right? despite the fact that mm. this was written by Maurice Gibb and Lulu with their weird, distanced, unworldliness, right? Surely mm. they can't have failed to notice that the chorus sounds like everybody's got the clap, right? It says everybody's <laughs> yes. got to clap. It sounds like everybody's got the clap. I don't believe for a minute that this mm. was an oversight, surely. And then when someone pointed it out to Maurice mm. Gibb,
2: well, that, that This Week documentary a couple of days earlier.
4: Yeah, cashing in. Yeah. Huh? yeah. It has to be deliberate. I mean, in 1971, everybody did have the clap, but you don't have to shout about <laughs> it. And I'm not no. sure that Lulu, of all people, uh, would find this a cause for celebration, you know. And no. Incompetent dancing. <laughs> Huge studio space for
2: Lulu and her chums to cavort upon. And pants people are off to the side doing a doing a sexy goose step, aren't they, pretty much? Yeah, yeah.
4: and in the same hot pants outfit as Lulu, mm. which is really <laughs> cruel. It's really unfortunate. I mean, mm. to wheel pants yeah. people back on in the same fucking outfit. I mean, sp- supposedly, to add to this spurious sense of community, there's like a sort of make-believe, secular gospel feel to this, because it's that kind of song, right? It's like a... Yes. It's like a a, a, yes a sub gospel record um so they've got all the band in the background and everyone's you know boogieing to this sort of anthemic uh, th- so yeah. of people are there yeah throw everyone in but really they're doing nothing but make lulu look by comparison like a bag of washing with iron bruce built on it it's really <laughs> seems really yeah. spiteful she's you know dressed I mean? she's dressed like a toddler isn't she lulu is She's got like a navy blue
2: top and shorts, and the, there's a purple flower in the middle of the top.
4: But it's she's she's wearing almost the same things as Pants People. It's just yeah. that they don't look like toddlers. Yeah, in there. bit more
3: flesh on display with Pants People, it's, obviously. Yeah. Well, yeah, we often talk about daddy's faction, don't we, on mm. on this show? And uh, oh, yes. with Pants People in this particular clip, I mean, I I don't want to sound like Toby Young or something, but we get a very startling cleavage shot straight away as soon as it cuts to the... Oh, yes. Um, and then there's some random audience members shuffling about. It's mm. it, the whole thing's a very odd directorial decision. Yeah. Um. And and in terms of the band members, um, given who you know the sort of personnel on this record, uh, we we don't see that much of them. I was trying to figure out um, who out of the personnel, you know, that remarkable lineup of people involved in making the record, yeah. who's actually here. Obviously, Morris Gibbs is. Not... Huh? John Bonham isn't. No. Well, this is it. And I. I was very careful to to find out because um I I found a photo of John Bonham from the previous month in which he's got a massive bushy handlebar mustache so I, I was able to ascertain that. Yeah, that yeah you know unless he shaved it off and then re-grew, regrew it very fast then Led Zeppelin's proud pop-hating record of shunning top of the pops uh, remains intact um Morris Gibbs there uh, very obviously very recognizable we're told Zoop Money is there is is jack bruce um that's inconclusive um but um leslie harvey is there leslie harvey uh, you mentioned from stone the crows was the brother of alex harvey um and the thing everyone knows about leslie harvey at least if you come from wales uh he died on stage about a year later in fact uh with with stone the crows stone the crows were a sort of blues rock band maggie bell on vocals um he touched a microphone that wasn't earthed uh, at a gig in Swansea and died. Oh. Um, and if, if if you're from Wales, it's one of the th- one of the few things you know about rock events that happened in in Wales. And the thing with mm. um, Stone the Crows is that they were co-managed by Mark London, who co-wrote um, to, to Sir with Love um, for Lulu. So there's the uh. Lulu connection with that's what brought him in. But as well as being co-managed um, by him, uh, they're also co-managed by Peter Grant who, of course, course, and then being able to tap up John Bonham to come in and at least play on the session, but presumably he had better things to do than be on Top of the Pops that night.
2: I mean, we've spoken before about the problems that the likes of Sandy Shaw and Dusty Springfield and Cilla Black have transitioning into the 70s, but you'd assume that Lulu, for want of a better word, had a bit more of a shout.
3: It's weird because on the one hand, she's hugely visible at all times. She's a She's yes. a BBC stalwart by now. She had her own yes. BBC One series. Presumably that's why she's on. That's why she's on mm. given that she's, she's box office poison in the charts right now. Yeah. Cause in, in musical terms, certainly in chart terms, she is in wilderness years. You mentioned how long it'd be yeah. since, um, she, she had a hit, uh, so you know, so we're talking post shout and boom bang a bang, pre Man Who Sold the World. It's this kind of low yes. in between where she can't get a hit, to save a life, and and indeed for for the Bee Gees, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of post mm. Words and Massachusetts and pre Saturday Night Fever, so they're kind of in the doldrums yeah. as well. Um, but you know, imagine being a viewer at this time. Uh, you know, you're thinking, why? You know, we didn't buy this. Why? Why is it on? This is her fifth. Mm. Single in a row that hasn't charted. Never mind, just the UK hasn't charted anywhere. It's it's, mm. it's a failure of democracy, uh, and that you know that's not to say she has not made any good records. Um, Melody Fair the previous year is a decent album she made uh, um, yeah. with uh, Tom Dowd and Jerry Wexler, Arif Mardin uh, on uh, released on At- on At- Yeah, yeah. Well, it was very much her answer to Dusty and Memphis. So exactly mm. the same production team as Dusty and Memphis. Trouble is. The singer's Lulu, not Dusty Springfield. You know what I mean? Mm. She's not a bad singer. She's a bit of a one trick no. pony. She's you know sort of like British Brenda Lee or whatever. Um, but this song, yeah. you you hear the title "Everybody Clap" and you just think loser immediately. There's just something about it. the heart sinks. "Everybody Clap," you think, oh god, that sounds a bit desperate. You know, mm. it's this kind of um, this 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 sentiment of trying to get everyone together and you know sort of bring people from their. the the sort of post-60s come down to sort of get together and just vaguely feel positive about something or other. Um, We're talking about uh, you know the early part of 1971 where 68 people had died in the Ibrox disaster in Lulu's hometown Mm. of of Glasgow. Uh, Idi Amin became president of Uganda in a coup. Um, The Vietnam War spilled over into Laos. Um, The weather underground have bombed the capital in Washington. Charles Manson and the family have been sentenced to death by gassing and his bloodshed and strife going on in Jordan, Uruguay, Turkey, Poland, Guinea, and Bangladesh. Um, in response to all that, uh, Lulu can't have <laughs> she can't have I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, because Coca-Cola mm. and the new seekers have already got that. Um, so her idea is to solve the world's problems by clapping. And when she claps yep. right, she goes <laughs> she makes this kind of uh noise and does this, this fist pump. Everybody. <laughs> this fist pump with a knee in the air and yeah, what, what it reminds me of right when <laughs> when you're at school there's always a kid in your class who like to do performative farting right you know they say right right you know there'll be someone in your class they go listen everyone I've got one I've got one wait wait everyone yeah. shut show, up and then they stick their knee in the air and go Ugh, like that and like really yeah. pump it out and that's just what it reminds me of when she does that
4: yeah it, it is revolting isn't it those guttural grunts. <laughs> I don't know if it's supposed to be like a, a soul music affectation. A yeah, Tina something. Turner yeah. kind of thing. It sounds like there's a ladies tennis match going on <laughs> yes, in the background. Yes. It's it really repulsive. If you heard that noise on a Betty Davis record or something, you'd think of sex. But mm. it's Lulu. Um, so you just it sounds like she's been impaled on an obelisk. Oh, it's got it's a heavy really, bag of shopping. Yeah, really unpleasant, isn't it? The main problem with this record is that it's secular religious music, which I fucking hate. Like, mm. like religious pop music without the excuse of uh, <laughs> of actually being religious. You know, it's like the greatest pop music of all time is often quasi-religious in that it locates the numinous in a godless universe, and it gives you the same lift of the spirit that God people get from. Whatever they get, you know, but this is the opposite. This is all the horror, all the trappings of like a VW camper van full of Jesus freaks, you know, but under an empty sky. It's like the really pointless in the truest sense. And it's horrible to listen to. Like, great, great record as it is, Hey Jude has got a lot to answer for because (laughs) there's a lot of these records where they try and copy the end of Hey Jude, that sense of, you know, yeah it's very simple and everyone's kind of singing along but hey jude earns that hey jude earns its its plodding overlong major chord fade out because it's an emotionally involving song that rises to that point you Mm -hmm. know whereas this just sort of walks straight in and yanks its trousers down so to speak you Mm -hmm. know it makes no effort to earn the participation of the congregation right which is us Mm -hmm. um it just, it just says, this is clapping music, you will clap now. Yes. Ugh.
3: And no, <laughs> fuck
4: off. It treats you like a, like a four-year-old in a crowd of other four-year-olds. Mm. It's really unpleasant, really nasty. And like that McGuinness Flint record, it is really catchy. I mean, it's called Everybody's Got the Clap, <laughs> appropriately enough. It's very catchy, despite being quite unpleasant. But <laughs> it's records like this that make me think of... There was somebody who wrote a letter to Melody Maker once about how somebody had said that some such a song was catchy. And they were saying, look, I work in Camden, and there's a bloke uh, who stands underneath the window of my office going, lighters, three for a pound. All day. Lighters, three for a pound. And he says every day this bloke would go home with, lighters, three for oh. a pound, going round and round his head. It's like, yeah, I don't want this in my head. I don't want it. Three
2: lighters for a pound? Yeah. When, f- when fucking 15 lighters for a pound man was knocking about.
4: <laughs> I know. <laughs>
2: Disgusting, man.
4: <laughs> yeah, but they're reassuringly expensive, isn't it? Oh, yeah, of course, They yeah. might last longer than one pack of fags.
2: Anything else to say about this?
4: yes uh when this came on i remembered my one favorite thing about lulu which is her greatest ever moment where she was asked in 1967 for her response to the the then current controversy over drugs and pop music um and she said where is this uh People talk about this love, love, love thing as if you have to be on drugs before you can be a part of it. In fact, love is far older than pot and goes right back to Jesus. I'm a believer, which is so exquisitely square um, and with just the right amount of crass ignorance in this assumption that Jesus is older than marijuana and Mm. that there was no such thing as love until 2,000 years ago. But it's like the perfect Lulu quote in that it's very smiley, very positive, sort of on the periphery of rock and roll, feeding off that energy, but 100% reactionary. But at the same time, too daft to be actively annoying because that's the thing about Lulu. Have you ever lost any sleep from hating Lulu? No, neither have I, right? Nobody likes Lulu. She gets on everybody's tits. But as soon as she's gone, she's gone. You know, you forget about her. She's like a a shooting pain. Like, it's intense, but it doesn't linger. So, mm. you know, can't even say that I hate Lulu. She's just an annoyance.
2: So, despite this performance, and the one on the Valdunican show the previous Saturday, everybody clapped couldn't find its charty arse with both hands. And it wouldn't be until January of 1974 that she made the charts again, when her cover of David Bowie's The Man Who Sold the World got to number three. <laughs>
0: Much. that's uh, that's a new one there from lulu and a very very nice number in you probably saw on the backing tracks as well there was uh, bill lorry who's lulu's brother of course suit money and there's also morris gibb who's a hobby and i think that's going to be a very big hit rec- record right now we're going to have a look at the charts three new entries this week we've got the delphonics in at 27 east of eden very unusual record in at 22 and this one we're going to dance to right now it's straight in at number 26 by saccharine it's called sugar sugar
2: Finally, Tony is let back on our screens as he skims over the top 30 and introduces Sugar Sugar by Saccharin. Born Kenneth King in London in 1944, Jonathan King was a former boarder of Charterhouse who began his music career as the lead singer of a pub band called The Bumblies before getting into Cambridge. While there, he managed to get a record deal for his old band, and although their single flopped, he used the experience and contacts to shop around for a solo deal. And after linking up with Decca Records and the producers of The Zombies, his debut solo single, Everyone's Gone to the Moon, appeared on Top of the Pops, sold 35,000 copies the next day, and eventually got to number four in September of 1965. Although the follow-up single, Green is the Grass, flopped, King hit upon an idea that would flourish throughout the early 70s, releasing singles under a pseudonym. He put out his Good Newsweek with the help of an RAF band called Hedgehoppers Anonymous, which got to number five in November of 1965. By the late 60s, he'd discovered and produced a band from his old private school, Genesis, written a column for Disc and Music Echo, presented a music show for ATV, worked a stint at Radio 1, and was the assistant to Sir Edward Lewes, The Founder of Decca. He also scored his second solo hit, a cover of The Ombre's Let It All Hang Out, which got to number 26 in January of 1970. It was in late 1970 when he cranked up the band projects. After two flop singles as Nemo... He tried again with a cover of It's the Same Old Song under the guise of The Weathermen, which got to number 19 in February of this year. And this is a cover of the Arches single that got to number one for eight weeks from late November to mid-December of 1969, under the name Saccharin, and it's up this week from number 37 to number 26. And finally,
3: we get to see the kids getting on down. Yeah, we see a lot of them, don't we? It's um, kind mm. of an important historical document. It really is. Uh, there's a lot of
2: attention upon the flowers of the Slough Technical Training College in their ragweek t-shirts, but I- I'm not sure it was wise to come on top of the pops with the words Scrag 71
3: across <laughs> their chests. Yeah, they they are being employed as a sort of um, intern pans people, sort of junior pans people, aren't they? Up mm. upon that sort of mezzanine stage, like 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 yeah. the under twenty ones for a football teams. Let's team.
2: go back to the um, to the article, uh, the Rolling Stone article by Robert Greenfield, uh, because this this describes uh, what we're seeing here. So, Dolly is a particularly English word for a girl, a secretary or model or go-go girl whose main function is to be decorative. One of Top of the Pops' hidden attractions for viewers are the dollies who are on display, the young girls who come to shake and pone in the time-honoured Hollywood go-go traditions first pioneered by the Gazeri dancers on American TV. A 15-year-old girl who appeared on the programme regularly told a reporter, Mum and I have spent more than £100 on clothes for the last five appearances. If you don't look spectacular, the cameramen won't notice you. Everyone I know watches, another regular gushed, so you don't mind spending all your money to look good. Instant stardom, that's what this is. Joan is 13. She met Samantha twice on Top of the Pops and once on a radio show. She used to tell everyone she was 23 years old, she said. She loved Top of the Pops so much. No one ever gave my daughter any trouble, Joan's mother says. No one ever approached her. She was just an acquaintance of this girl. It was the girl herself, I think. That's all there is to say about it. She would have done the same thing if there had been no Top of the Pops mum and I reckon, Joan says timidly, but she did love it so much. She got it in her head and couldn't get it out. It is a month since Claire Ruffland died and the stories about her in the British press have stopped. Her parents have moved to a new address and don't want to give any more interviews. For one reason or another, all journalists are banned from the Top of the Pops studio. Black uniformed security guards enforce the ruling, questioning strange faces and checking at the exits and along the studio floor. In the studio, the clarinet player concentrates on the chessboard balanced on his lap. The flute player waits for his move as they both wait for a break in the run through to end. Top of the Pops is being taped on Wednesday night, one night before it's shown over the air in BBC's special colour studios. A huge hangar of a place with a ceiling hung with lights and steel framework girders, as if some giant had been at play with an erector set. Jimmy Savile is this week's host. His hair sprayed very white, a big cigar in his mouth and out again and in his hand. He's found a paper party favour that he whizzes into the camera. The run-through ends and the outside set of doors is open to let the audience in. Two painted girls, faces chalk white over acne skin, are stopped. How old are you, a suit and tie executive asks. Seventeen, one says. Sixteen, says the other. Do you have proof? I have, the seventeen-year-old says. I haven't. Er, well, you see, I I work in Marks and Spencers. You can call them up and check. I am sixteen. Go in, then. Remember, the warm-up man tells us once they're inside, this is a dance programme, so let's dance, shall we? All the dancing is very genteel, slightly lame, white, middle-class and polite, like at a Saturday night wedding in the suburbs, except for one girl in the corner. She has the face of a woman, the body of a girl, no breasts, good legs in aquamarine satin, hot pants, Boots up to the knees laced tightly over bare skin, a see-through white blouse. Her face is painted. All throughout the show, as floor managers herd the girls from one place to another, turning them so they don't block the stars, she is pushing. Waterfalling her red hair so that it tumbles over her head when she bends to shake. Banging away at the music until the assistant producers and the floor men start to notice and line her up in camera range. The warm-up man goes over to her and asks a question. He writes her answer down. Finally, it pays off. She's pulled out of the crowd and set up to dance on a platform at the far end of the studio to Britain's number one sound for the sixth week in a row, Hot Love by T-Rex. The closing credits roll. Every man in the room who's not working is on tiptoe, craning for a better look. It's not often you get to see a girl ball a camera. How'd you like that for a night? The suit and tie executive asks a guard, who's too old to remember. Wouldn't sleep at all, would you? The guard grins back crookedly, slamming one hand across the other and drawing it back and forth in a piston-like motion. Diabolical, he says slowly. And such hot love does this little girl have to offer as she goes one-on-one with the BBC colour lens, rolling her shoulders and opening her mouth slightly in adolescent promise of the best sex ride around. After the taping ends, the girl said her name was Linda Salmon. She was 18 years old and out of work. She was a dancer, she said, and she wanted to work in television.
3: The weird thing is, um, I I noticed that in the uh, Tony Blackburn link preceding this, um, that the the women stood around him, looked very... Uh, prim and proper and buttoned up mm. and were only shown from the shoulders up and uh I wondered for a second if that was some sort of directorial decision like we've had our wrists slapped uh we yes we'll show tony flanked by women but you know only yeah, in the manner of women yeah. yeah and and yeah and only in the manner of some kind of a victorian portrait but then we then we cut to this uh you know this this dance sequence and all bets are off again
4: it's a tricky one though isn't it because mm. it's young people like to dance and wear yeah. crazy clothes. So yes, you know, it's like, it's not that it's like, whose fault is it that all the people who know how to operate camera equipment were 40, you know, <laughs> yeah. and were inevitably uh, at that time going to leer and, you know, it's, uh, it's it, I mean, what do you do? Just not, not put anyone on TV and, and unless they're old and, and, wearing something that comes down to the floor. The
2: 1970 uh, episode, me and you and Neil looked at, um, the, the dancers, there were plenty of dancers uh, in, in the studio, but we we, we kind of clocked that a lot of them looked, um, for what of a better word, professional. They were, they, they were seen, you know, they were, they were like kind of like professional models mixed in with the kids. Yeah, or at um, least
4: hand-picked for uh, uh, yes. their dancing skills, yeah
2: yeah um that seemed to have gone now hasn't it yeah. <laughs> yeah
4: luckily what's also gone was the thing of uh putting the girls in tiny miniskirts up on a platform and yeah. filming them from underneath yeah. which there is that yes certainly overstepping the mark i think
2: yeah but uh, as we'll find out in certain cases
3: there's no need for that yeah
4: yes yeah, yeah.
3: they are up on a platform but yeah they're filmed from a certain distance. Um, the, the thing that really shows that people are not chosen anymore for their dancing ability necessarily is the guy who's right alongside the slough girls uh in in very yes. high-waisted grey trousers and a coral shirt mm. who looks like gareth from the office um gareth yes. from the office um meets exactly a, a like young Marquis smith i was going to say as well
2: i mean the 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 blokes look fucking uniformly
3: awful no they don't, don't they? No, they don't. There's this, There's that one black guy in a... Uh, oh, yeah, there's him, in, yeah. In a, he's got a lime green shirt and a bright orange tie. Yeah. Having the time yes. of his life, he looks amazing. Yes. I Also, I, yes. I quite like the style of that guy. Um, We see quite a lot of this one guy. He's got a purple jumper and a red yes. neckerchief. And he looks a bit like D'Artagnan, I thought. I was going to say Geoffrey Formile, I d- the early I years. I don't know what that is. Right. Georgian Mildred's next-door oh, okay. neighbour. right, okay. You know me, BBC House. Is this
4: the bloke who keeps doing the whirly, wind it up (laughs) hand movement in front of his chest? No. Like he's signalling to the bench that he wants to come off.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this is is one lad and he looks looks exactly like the kind of lad you you go to the other side of the refectory to avoid when you're at college. You you know when you're 12 and you start going to the youth club disco and you're, you're having a bit of a dance and you're trying things out and you just catch yourself in the mirror doing this one thing? And it, not only does it feel good, but it, you think it looks good as well. So you do that thing over and over and over. That's that's what he's like. <laughs> he's got it into his head that doing that rotating thing is is, is going to make him look a bit of a head. Yeah. And it, it makes him look a, an enormous dickhead.
4: I'll tell you what else is weird, though. When you look at the audience from this period, there's a real gulf between the beautiful people and everyone else, Yeah, right? And like nowadays, there's so many beauty products and makeup techniques and male grooming products, that the playing field has become a lot more level. Mm. And almost anyone can look glamorous at least, or, you know, well-groomed, whatever they look like naturally. Whereas here, you get the genetically blessed, on the one hand, who are all full of self-confidence and, you know, looking wonderful. And then normal people who all look really uncomfortable and Mm. like they've been sleeping in a chip shop, you know? (laughs) Um, And they're mostly thin. Unlike now, despite the fact that nobody in the seventies did any exercise and lived on a diet of uh, white bread, sausages, uh, lard, (laughs) custard, (laughs) brown ale, and HP sauce. Um, And, Bowls of cornflakes with full fat milk and seven spoons of sugar on yeah. uh, Kellogg's
2: Rise and Shine if you were look at
4: <laughs> powdered orange juice. <laughs> but yeah, very distant from beauty. But in a way, I think this is how the classic early seventies look was created, wasn't it? It was mm. normal people reaching towards glamour. Mm. But they live in early seventies Britain. Mm. So they can't make themselves look like actually glamorous people. They can only make themselves look weird Mm. and sort of kind of wear weird colors and put shiny things on their face and stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, But it's okay because we're all at this point still living in the same reality and human beings can still relate and respond to each other Mm. rather than to, you know, images and phantoms. So you get a human response and... Positive things can flow from it, you know, proper memories and satisfying feelings. Mm. Uh, But yeah, it's there's definitely a bit of a missing middle um, when you look at the state of these people.
2: There's a good opportunity to see the myriad lengths of the hot pants of the day. It wasn't (laughs) one length. I mean, there's there's one girl with a, a bit of an Amy Winehouse hairdo. And she's got extremely tiny hot pants on, but a mate next to her, she she appears to be wearing Freddie Starr's
3: Hitler shorts. <laughs> yeah, I I really like Taylor's point there about um, glam being a kind of sort of make do and mend response of of Britain to yeah. to the wish to be glamorous but not having the kind of uh, wherewithal to carry it off. Because in a way, that's what glam yeah. was. Um, if you look at even the you know T Rex who were bumped down to uh, number one uh, this this week. Um, Mark Boland, um sort of put glitter on by accident almost. It was a, a makeup artist backstage who just, before he was going to go on, I think he was going to go on to Telegram Sam, who said, just try a bit mm. of this, and just st- stuck some green glitter under his eyes. And suddenly that just became a whole thing, and the whole movement took off. And it's just something that anybody mm. could get from a, a craft shop. Yeah, it, It's not um, haute couture. And, um, yeah, I I, I really like that. And I I think Taylor's onto something there, that um, it was all within reach at that time. Let's talk about the charts because,
2: uh, yeah. as with the top of the popsers of this era, it's in the middle of the show, and we see them dancing in front of an enormous screen in yeah. 1971 uh, with the with the chart rundown. Uh, interesting way of laying it out, I think.
3: Yeah, massive photos, massive faces looming <laughs> yeah, black up behind and white. Yeah, some of them are terrifying. Uh, yes. the, the most terrifying one to me was this guy who I hadn't heard of before called Jerry Monroe. Uh, yes. He he looks yeah. he looks like a cross between Eric Morcombe and a fascist dictator. Um yes. a- apparently he was off opportunity Knox, and he's this yodeling falsetto yes. guy from the northeast. And I I listened to his hit that is uh, it's called It's a sin to tell a lie that was in his chart and it, it actually is quite unsettling and quite frightening. So wow. there's, there's, there's that one. Um and and then um you've got um Waldo De Los Rios. Uh, yes. he looks like he looks like Carlos the Jackal on the run Yes, um,
4: hiding, hiding in the pop charts <laughs> he looks like he was picked up by Interpol at Caracas <laughs> airport <laughs> in 1974 <laughs> oh and um, fame and price together Yes. Georgie fame and Alan Price choosing not to call themselves the price of fame oh, yeah right the biggest cop out until Hoddle and Waddle mm-hmm. went out as Glenn and Chris yeah but the, the thing is, the these massive black and white publicity photos on this giant screen. Um, what's really disturbing about it is what they do quite often when it's a group, someone's cut round the heads yes. of the members and arranged these like four or five disembodied heads yeah. around the screen. Like on a pantomime poster. Yeah, yeah,
2: or or um, outside Traitor's Gate.
4: Yeah, but this is it, but by nineteen seventy one, group's hair was getting so long that they couldn't just cut round the head like a circle. They had to include two drooping lengths of of lank hair yeah. on each side, so it looks like all these bands are made up of like red setters or something. <laughs> really peculiar. And they arrange these heads at jaunty angle around the, yes. the screen, like it's like if. Uh, if ISIS had a sense of humour, you know what I mean? <laughs> the, the, the most disturbing one is The Fantastics, mm. who is a group of four black guys with moustaches and st- slightly startled expressions. Yes. Yeah. It's their heads arranged in a row. They look like the contents of Jeffrey Dahmer's fridge.
3: <laughs> That's what I thought. I, th- I thought exactly the same thing. The singer from The Fantastics, I assume he's a singer because he's sort of front and center, he looks dead. He looks like a
4: corpse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's
3: really weird. But the song. I mean, it's it's a bit of a shit semi-instrumental cover, mm. isn't it? Um, uh, of Sugar Sugar. Big on the drums, mm. a la glitter band and John Congos, I guess, that kind yeah. of thing. Uh um very bad guitar soloing, Ooh, I yes. thought. The guitar soloing is out of sync, but not in a cool not in a cool kind of freestyle jamming way mm. that that you might go out of sync but bring it all back round again. It's just kind of Badly haywire. That's what I thought. Yeah, it reminds me once again of the hippies in Carry On Camping.
4: Yeah. Although this is one of the better records he was ever involved with. Mm. That's not a a bar you need to shield your eyes and look upwards to see. (laughs) But it is. I mean, it's really tasteless and horrible Mm. and quite weird and totally brutal. You know what I mean? And the one interesting thing about the record is that it like all his stuff it comes out of a contempt for pop music Mm. but in another way it shows a deep understanding of pop music that you know it can just be complete trash and that's okay the usual rules don't apply you know it's fine it only has to brighten a moment um and in that respect, this doesn't mess around, you know. Even though it is just literally messing around.
3: I quite like a record by him, which objectively is even worse. Johnny Reggae by Piglets, oh, yes. which came out came out yeah. later in the same year, which is both worse and better, I reckon, <laughs> for 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 pretty much the same reasons. I tell you what bothers me about this, and this is like a real pedant thing, uh, is that um, in the uh, Guinness Book of British Hit Singles, um, saccharin are not listed. Um, it's it's listed under Jonathan King. Right. Uh, and, and then uh, it turns out that all of his various guises are just listed under Jonathan oh. King. Um, so Sakharin don't get... And um, he must have had a hand in that because he was one of the people behind the, the Guinness oh. book. So it's, it's as if, you know, he, he pulled his prank on the music industry in the early 70s by managing to get more airtime than you were technically meant to have mm. by, you know, having all these aliases. And... Now now you know the sort of game's up and he's had the hits. He wants everyone to know, yes, look, it was me, look what I did. Mm. And that, yeah. that kind of bugs me a bit. Yeah. You know, um when when you when you by the way, when you type um Sakarin spelt that way with a double K uh into Wikipedia, what you get instead uh, it's the former king of uh, Luang Prabang in Southeast Asia, uh, who had seven wives. Uh, this is around the, the turn of the 20th century. He had seven wives, uh, one of whom was called Queen Thongzi, <laughs> which I think is an amazing name. It really needs to be like a trap artist, I reckon. Anything else to say about this?
4: Well, that it's uh, continuing a bit of a theme on this show. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Yes, like the disturbing thing about this is the fact that Jonathan King was sort of first call for the pedo dragnet on account of being gay, which is not to minimise the wrongness of Jonathan King, as if your name was Jonathan King, but <laughs> there there was still this idea that a man having sex with a fourteen year old boy, even if that fourteen year old boy was gay isn't just the same as a man having sex with a 14 year old girl it's inherently far far worse right um of course as opposed to a woman having sex with a 14 year old boy which is seen as the answer to every lad's prayers you know yes um but this it's about perception and i mean it's not that there's any doubt that people like jonathan king and tam payton and chris denning were you know terrible abusers to varying degrees but appalling people doing appalling things to young vulnerable people it's just this idea that somehow the finger has to point in their direction first before Mm. Britain can then go on to accept that maybe straight men failing to restrain themselves around jailbait crumpet might also be a little bit of a problem too you know it's like, it's almost like the issue here is if you'd left him alone, that lad might have turned out to be straight.
2: Yeah. yeah. No,
4: you, you've robbed the world of another straight person. It's a really strange perspective that people in this country have, you know. I mean, you don't want to say it because you sound like you're sticking up for the legends of the Walton Hop, you know, which I'm yeah. very certainly not. I I've already told the story about how I said basically yeah. that to Jonathan, one of Jonathan King's employees in a pub and was invited to become one of his prison pen pals. And it only dawned on me later <laughs> that this will be, because when this was relayed to Jonathan King, he heard the word journalist and his narcissistic, zero empathy brain went click, you know, yeah, maybe yeah. I can get some, get something out of this, you know. Eesh.
3: I was reading up on, um, you know, the, the, um, the, the legal case, because uh, I, I yeah, I I had this vague idea in the back of my mind that maybe Jonathan King was unfairly targeted for being gay, and I I was I wasn't sure of the facts, and I needed to know. And basically, when when you look at what he did, yeah, it, it's wrong. What everything he did is you know com- completely wrong. But one one thing mm. that um, really struck me was how methodical he was about. Oh yes. It. there's this thing that he did. He apparently he approached thousands of people with questionnaires about yes. uh, claiming it was market research, uh, a- asking what their um what they thought was most important to them. Uh so it's like music, sport, friends and family and so yeah. on. And boys who listed sex high in their list of priorities, they were then immediately yeah. targeted by, by Jonathan yeah. King. It's it's quite quite remarkable. Yeah,
2: and no, I've, I've asked if they uh,
3: fancy sleeping with Colombian air or Samantha Fox. Right. Mm. You know um, when 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 somebody gets their comeuppance, uh, you know you think, well, you know I, I never liked them anyway. Good. Well, obviously in a case like this, you know you think, well, you know um, if people have been hurt in this, then then you feel a bit bit of a piece of shit yourself for saying good. Mm. But I I always despised Jonathan King. He was just even before his stuff came out, he was just so loathsome oh, to yes. me as a, just a, just as a figure in pop culture. You know, mm. just his fucking. Smug, lopsided grin, and his his way of fucking inflicting terrible, terrible mainstream American music on on on, on, a, on a reluctant Britain, which eventually caved in 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 the yeah. late in the late eighties. I I've never yeah. forgiven him for that.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm shocked that we haven't covered one of those episodes at the top of the Pops yet. I'm sure we will at some point. Can't wait. So, the following week, Sugar Sugar jumped seven places to number 19 and would get as high as number 12. He never recorded under the Sakarin name again, but followed it up with Lazy Bones, a cover of the 1933 Hoagy Carmichael tune, which got to number 23 for two weeks in June. Then he produced Leap Up and Down, Wave Your Knickers in the Air for Sent Cecilia, which got to number 12 in July. Followed that up with Johnny Reggae by The Piglets, which got to number three in November, and closed out 1971 under his own name again with Hooked on a Feeling, which got to number 23 in December. He also produced four songs for the Bay City Rollers and sang the backing vocals on their first hit, Keep On Dancing, and then set up his own label, UK Records, a year later. And all the other stuff.
0: There you go, that's our uh, brand new look at the charts. It's very nice to have a brand new number one, isn't it? Do you like the new new number one? Um, Yes. You do, lovely. Okay, what we're gonna do now, and actually that is how the LP spawn from uh, an album called Long Player, here are Faces, and they're gonna do two numbers. First of all, Ronnie Lane's gonna take the lead vocal on a number called Richmond, and then Rod Stewart, and a number called Bad and Ruined. So here they are, Faces.
2: Amongst the Kids again says it's very nice to have a new number one and asks a hot panted madam if she likes it. She thinks about it and says yes. Finally, he introduces this week's album section which features Richmond and Bad and Ruin by The Faces. Formed in London in 1969, the Faces were the Small Faces, minus Steve Marriott, who had pissed off to form Humble Pie, but plus Ronnie Wood and Rod Stewart, who had just left the Jeff Beck group. They released their debut single, Flying, in late 1969, but it failed to chart. And the following LP, First Step, came out in March of 1970, only getting to number 45 in the album charts. This appearance as part of Top of the Pops' LP section, is a showcase of their latest long player, Long Player, which has just come out and hasn't charted yet. Now, this is a regular thing on Top of the Pops' of the era because this year we've already had the Rolling Stones doing tracks from Sticky Fingers. We've had the Groundhogs, Neil Diamond, McGuinness Flint, Badfinger, Cleo Lane, Tom Paxton, The Hollies, The Four Seasons, The Kinks, Elton John, Stevie Wonder,
3: and the cast of Jesus Christ Superstar, and do they generally get to do two songs? Is that the deal? Right? Okay. Yes. Okay. Now, mm. seems like a very anti-pop thing to do. It massively anti-pop. The old grey whistle test doesn't exist yet, but it it nearly does. And there's this thing called Disco Two, which was which is the sort of precursor. Which is on yeah, tonight? Yeah. Uh, was Was it? Was it, was it Richard no, Williams presenting that? I can't remember. Yeah, I believe so, so basically, yeah. in all but name, the whistle test is there. And it's there, I think, for this kind of stuff, surely. I mean, if you look at the charts, uh, we, we we could have had
2: Remember Me by Diana Ross, Didn't I Blow Your Mind This Time by the Delphonics, or Heaven Must Have Sent You by the Elgins. I mean, you oh. chucked two out of those three in, you've got a fucking blinding
3: episode at Top of the Pot. I feel really sorry for the kids in the audience as well, um, because yes. they're gamely trying to boogie... To, to a song, certainly the first bit, that has no... Richmond. Yeah, that has, yeah Richmond, which has no beat. And, you know, this, this may be yeah. the only time they get to be on top of the Pops in their lives, the, you know, the audience. Uh, you know, the, this is their sort of respite from their grey 1971 lives. And they get mm. these... You get the fucking, well, the two Ronnies uh, starting off uh, with a bit of bottleneck guitar. And the the, the yeah. camera zoomed in on their hands and fingers. And we, we can hear hear one yeah. of them says... It's very good. It's like, oh fuck off! And then the camera pulls back, and I'm thinking, yeah. which one of these two fuckers is is smugly saying to the other one? Yeah, oh, it's very good. And we later find out that it, it's Ronnie Lane saying it. This is bad because yeah. I know about his illness, and I know all. You know, it's really really sad what happened to him. I can't look at him. It he's when these people, his face just makes me feel unwell. He's like he's like he's fucking jug-eared wasp chewing. He's like he's, he's he's like a he's like a, a melted John Alderton. And, <laughs> he is. And, a, and and someone someone throws a some bog roll at him um sadly not pre-used which is is, is fair comment we we <laughs> we later find out what the bog roll things about but yeah then it goes he goes. it's pretty good again and there there's there's It's like when
2: um uh, when bloody Ronan said oh it's boys own nice. live on top of the pops and they're going oh look we're playing live yeah, everyone yeah yeah yeah
3: yeah cuz we're a proper band the way they smile at each other it, it it just makes it so clear that mm. it's for their own benefit. This is literally wank, yeah, right. And oh, uh, just in the background, you've got you've got Rod pulling inexpertly at an upright bass. But you know, mm. so that the fucking lyrics of Richmond, by the way.
2: This, I mean Richmond. Before we go into Richmond, essentially essentially uh, shaking.
3: You got the silver. By Rolling Stones, isn't it? Yeah, it goes. uh, The women, because it's all about being in New York. It's basically Super Trooper, but not as good, right? So he's going. uh, uh, (laughs) He's he's going. um, The women, they may look very pretty, and some they know it, but some look good. They show a leg and smile. But they all look like the flowers in someone else's garden. That's actually the best bit. Mm. Uh, but it's basically about, about mm. being in, in New York and missing missing your woman back home. But it's insipid. It's pitiful. It's just rubbish. Yeah,
2: I mean, I, I, originally I thought, oh, they mean Richmond, Virginia, but no, obviously not. No, Ronnie Wood and all that lot—they're all in. They're all from Surrey, aren't they? So it's it's that. Yeah, Richmond. they mean
3: Zach. They mean Zach Goldsmith's stomping ground.
2: I used to work in Richmond, and I don't miss the fucking place at all. <laughs> it's fucking boring and expensive. Fucking Richmond or New York in 1971. Roar.
4: See ya. All right? yeah, yeah, exactly. See, I really like the faces, but after that supercharged top 20 rundown, I'm not really yearning for, a like, a slow, playful Cockney blues, you know. So why they chose to do Richmond... It's like, it's like
2: getting Dusty
4: Bin, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, but, I mean, as we've seen before, and we'll see, again, any kind of tampering with the basic Top of the Pops format is a mistake and it only leads to mm. dilution and loss of focus, yeah. you know. It's what happens here. Like it's like someone's reached out and grabbed the giant brake lever and yanked it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Underneath that slide guitar you can hear this almighty mechanical groan as the program slows down to a crawl <laughs> to let yeah. some goats across the tracks, you know. And uh <laughs> and this isn't This week, it's not really the kind of show where this sort of boozy, you know, bonhomie really makes any sense. It's like they've walked in off a different show or out of a different pub.
2: If it had been on Disco 2 or, you know, Old old Grey Whistle Test for years later, it'd be like, oh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, OK, I'll listen to this. But because it's on top of the pops, it's like,
3: ugh. Yeah. It's like, fuck off, this isn't for you.
2: Yeah. You know, it's actually like playing football with your mates are having a really good game and then some fucking dads come spilling out of the pub, <laughs> pissed out of their brains and uh, Give us a go. thinking yeah. the
3: fucking Socrates. <laughs> at least when I when when it kicks into bad and ruin, yeah. at least that's got a bit of life to it. Well, yes.
2: Yes. And this is this is where we see the problems for uh for the faces because it's it's clearly obvious
3: that Rod's not going to be uh, tied down to this band for much longer. No, because he is He's he's ugly sexy. Mm. You got to you got to say that for him. He's got a massive fucking nose and a warty face, but he's got this kind of sex appeal to use a very nineteen seventies term. Yes, that, that that can't be denied. Really, mm. even even if he's worryingly sort of Bobby Gillespie like at times. In <laughs> well, although
4: I would say Rod's tight revealing trousers. Possibly ill-advised in light of his rather yeah. unimpressive bulge. Now, I mean, maybe he's a grower, <laughs> not a shower. Right? Fine, but in that case, <laughs> mm. get a different tailor because those strides yeah. were made for Jimi Hendrix. It's not mm. flattering yes. at all.
3: And then we then uh, yeah. we, we we find out the source of the toilet roll gag. It's Ronnie Wood has got a guitar in the shape yes. of a toilet seat. So it's some kind of band yes. in joke going on. Um and then you have got mm. um so the keyboardist that's McLagan isn't it, joins in. Um and then we get a shot of the drummer Kenny Jones who he looks he looks mm. like um he looks like a cross between uh Derek Smalls and a young Desmond Lynham.
2: Yes. Yeah, he's, he's he's had a go at tush hasn't he?
4: Yeah, he looks like a Dutchman. <laughs> 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 Uh, But, yeah, it is weird watching the audience try to dance because it is an uneasy shifting around. Because Mm. you need to be a bit drunk to move to this music because it's booze music. As surely as Roots Reggae is weed music, you know. This is sweating brandy and it's all wet-lipped and open-mouthed, you know. Um, But it's young people's boozing, right? It's the the world opening up in front of you, you know, and all of it is funny. It's not that sort of middle-aged boozing where you simultaneously pacified and demoralized. You know, these lads have a drink and their bodies loosen up, you know, as opposed to shutting mm. down. <laughs> but yeah, it's it just doesn't fit here, you know. And mm. I think it's, these songs were re-recorded. Like they, they're not actually playing live, live. I think the vocals might be live, but the music certainly isn't mm. they're not plugged in. But it's not the record. So I think they've gone in and re-recorded it. In the way that all groups yeah. were supposed to not mime to the yes. record, but of course they never did. You know, the famous Dodge was you were supposed to give the master tape to the top of the pops people that you were going to mime to, and it was supposed to not be the record. It was supposed to be a re recording of the record. And at first, mm. what people would do was go into the studio, just slightly mix something up and something else down and say, there you go, it's different. And then they stopped even doing mm. that. They just gave them the record. And yeah. yeah. There you go.
3: Well, if that's true, then then the, the the two Ronnies here with their fucking circle jerk at the start—it's not even just—they're not even fucking playing that bottleneck guitar. They're just sort of like miming it and looking just, oh yeah, this is good, pretty yeah. good. Fuck off.
4: And yeah. speaking of not live, <laughs> the applause at the end is hilarious. It's like it's been yes. flown in from a three thousand seater venue. You know, there's a little <laughs> sweetening going on there. I think
3: I thought it's quite funny that um, yeah. when. You get the transition from the slow song to the fast song. The producers get a bit creative with uh, the the colour washes and the, the special effects on the camera. Mm. You know, it's like, yeah, man, it's you know, we let's let's freak out. It's rock and roll yeah. now. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I, I quite there's there's one bit in in the Rod Stewart one uh, that I I did like it goes um, and I'll be down on Cannon Street, passport in my hand. Should you not recognise me in my heavily made-up eyes? This is um, addressing his his mother, yeah. who might not recognise him because he's been living this debauched rock and roll lifestyle. Um, and then the the so- song slows down a bit towards the end, and Rod starts barking like a dog yes. for some reason. But there we go. Yeah, yeah.
2: blue tulip, Rod Stewart. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so over a week later long player entered the uk album charts at number 33 eventually getting as high as number 31 in late may and their only single from it their cover of maybe i'm amazed failed to chart however rod stewart's third solo lp every picture tells a story was released a few months later and got to number one for six weeks and the lead-off single from it Maggie May ruled over the charts for five whole weeks and when the band reconvened at the end of the year for the next LP and nods as good as a wink to a blind horse they ended up with the number one LP and the single Stay With Me in February of 1972 but It was getting near the time when they were known as Rod Stewart and the Faces.
3: After the Faces, Ronnie Lane formed a band called Slim Chance with Gallagher and Lyle, um, who (laughs) we've already seen in uh, McGuinness Flint. This episode is like one of fucking Pete Frame's rock family trees. It's so tangled.
0: That's our LP spot, uh, and a very good one as well. Thank you very much, though, to the uh, faces. Right now, uh, Hot Rex has been at number one for six weeks running, and it really is quite nice to have a brand-new number one uh, record, particularly when it's as good as this. So here is Dave and Ansel Collins with their number one sound, which is called Double Barrel, isn't it? You forgot, <laughs> didn't you? Here it is right now. And <laughs> the magnificent. I'm back with a shake of a so... More soccer, soccer, market, 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 music on the market. market, Sounds of Soul.
1: soul.
0: I am the And I'm still here again.
2: (laughs) Tony, with the kids clustered round him once more, tells us that Hot Rex has been number 1 for 6 weeks but
4: no longer.
2: Hot fucking Rex Hot for Rex. God's sake. What a great name that is.
4: If you were like a male stripper and you come on like dressed as Rex Harrison. Yes. It'd be brilliant. It does sound like a sort of alias of Bummer Dog. I yes, think. I was just about to say that. Yeah, Hot Rex. Sorry. Sung
2: by Rod Stewart. That would be great, wouldn't it? Hot Rex. Yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> He gets a girl in dungarees to say the name of the new number one, but she forgets. It's Double Barrel by Dave and Ansel Collins. Born in Kingston, Jamaica in 1947, David Crooks began his career in the mid-60s as a vocalist in the Two Tones, who was then poached by Winston Riley and drafted in as a replacement to lead singer Pat Kelly in his band The Techniques. In 1969, Riley linked him up with a couple of tracks put together by Ansel Collins, who was also born in Kingston in 1949 and was the keyboard player in The Invincibles, who played on Pressure Drop and Sweet and Dandy for Toots and the Maytals and was asked to imagine that he was James Bond on top of a mountain. Two years later and three weeks before this episode, Collins was in the studio with the techniques and Riley received a phone call from Trojan Records in London telling him that Double Barrel was at number 17 in the UK charts and selling like an absolute bastard and they were required for Top of the Pops right there and then. So they cleared out for London and were whisked straight to the studio for their debut performance. The record soared 13 places to number 4 Got to number two last week and has knocked Hot Rex himself off the <laughs> perch that he'd been sitting on for the past six weeks to attain its rightful slot at number one. And here they are again in the studio. Who's going to start by saying how fucking monumentally
3: skilled this song is? You won't get any oh, argument yeah. out of me. It is fucking mint. <laughs> yeah, one of the best records we've dealt with on this. Yes,
2: show. I would say alongside Kung Fu Fighting as the definitive number one of the 70s. Really, yeah. Really? Yeah, <laughs> from my point of view.
3: Uh, but this is fucking skill. It is. It's one of those ones, It's we, we often get this, when a record is so good, you almost can't yeah. talk about it. Yes. It's almost impossible to say anything. Except all you can do is talk around it or talk about the performance.
2: Yeah, or talk about the first time you heard it. The uh, first time I heard this song was uh, in the late 70s. Uh, dad was working at the co-op again. And we used to go to the co-op social club in Nottingham on a Saturday night. And the DJ, without fail, would play this and Monkey Spanner back to back every yeah. week. And everyone of all ages would be up on the dance floor fucking having it to it.
3: Yeah, I suppose I would have first heard it um, like by going backwards from being into two-tone, you know. Um, when, you yeah. know, sort of 79, 80, I was getting into Two-Tone Scar, and, um, well, for a start, you had the specials covering a lot of this kind of stuff on their mm. B-sides, um, and then once my dad twigged that I was getting into this, he had all these sort of compilation albums, like Club Scar 67, all these LPs yeah. and stuff like that. So that that would have been how I, I would have heard this for the first time. But I, I love mm. the fact that in Britain of 1971... Mm. Um, This, right, I think this is a really working class number one. Yes. Um, I I think, you know, it's not just being bought by um, skinheads in Brutus short sleeve shirts and oxblood Dr. Martins, but Mm. it's being bought just by masses of, you know, British working class people who, you know, it's it's probably not coming off being played on the radio that much. I don't know. It's probably very club based. I think they only had about
2: 33 plays on national radio.
3: Before it got into the charts. So it's a very real, very true number one. It's sort of grown organically Mm. from just people fucking loving it.
2: Yeah, Um, because it was really hard for uh, reggae
3: singles to get a foothold on the Radio 1 playlist. So this is the second uh, reggae song to be number one after the Israelites two years earlier. So there is this whole thing going on, this sort of skinhead movement around this time. And it's, yeah. it's 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 yeah I I I love the fact all right there was a bit of a lull in the mid to late seventies but that there was this thing that was then echoed a decade later by t- by two tone mm. and um it's it's just it's it's a sort of um underwritten about time I think and of course you yes. had all kinds of weird shit like fucking um, Judge Dread and then. Yeah, like oh, Prince yes. Buster and his Ten Commandments and some sort of ropey old yes. dodgy records like that. But you know, it's 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 a really interesting phenomenon, I think. Yeah.
2: Bass Culture by Lloyd Bradley. That is a fucking amazing book about the history of reggae. Right. I think there's a two and a half page section describing reggae record shops in the in the seventies, and I think it's my favourite bit of music writing
3: ever. It's fucking amazing. That's an interesting point in itself, because how many copies of this record were shifted out of reggae? Shops that weren't yeah, even chart return shops.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it goes it goes on in it that how how difficult it was for Trojan to get a foothold in uh, on the Radio One playlist. They would turn up a broadcasting house and just basically have the door slammed in their face. Okay. And it, 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 they wouldn't take a blind bit of notice. To a reggae song, unless it got into the charts on its own, and they and
3: they couldn't not play it. And this is quite an unusual one to take off as well, because it's not something like the Israelites, which is basically a pop song, yeah, you know, which has got its sort of verse chorus structure and anybody can sort of latch onto mm. it. This is this basically, you know, a sort of sound system record in a way. Yes. It's it's a it's, it's a rhythm track with a guy occasionally shouting over the top about how fucking awesome. Yes, he is, you know, which is is really unusual. So this
4: is why you talk about um this record being in a way hard to talk about well part of the reason for that is that it's pure music Mm. do you know what i mean in the same like the concept of pure film this is like the equivalent it's just pure music it's like it it doesn't get much purer or more essential than this you know which is it's like the opposite of a lot of people's view at the time and ever since not just of this record but of anything that breaks the rules of Cole Porter or Rogers and Hammerstein, you know, it, it like it's not music, you know, this isn't real music because there isn't a song getting in the way, you know. Uh, you don't have to go through that quite as much now, but every new generation has its share of hippies and snobs, mm. you know. But back then, that went really deep, you know, really, really mm. deep. Like not just uh, among people programming Radio 1, but amongst heads mm. as well, you know. So it's not real music. And it wasn't just... Uh, a racial thing, um, is it was, as you say, it was a class thing. It's the fact that records like this were big on football terraces and yeah. you know, youth club discos and people who wouldn't go to university, mm. you know. And the records themselves were not cerebral in any no. way. So they fell foul of that sort of weird, misplaced, middle-brow approach to pop music that hung around for years. When, in fact, that's the strength of this record, that it simultaneously totally natural and instinctive and physical but also it's tantalizing in its inarticulacy right in that it throws out so many abstract and disjointed ideas and little suggestions it's more stimulating to the mind than most of those records that you can read like a book um and also, you know, it jacks up your nervous system and it gets things moving mm. that way. It's like a piece of magic, yeah. you know, which only makes sense to people who understand the form, uh, consciously or unconsciously, yeah. you know. And in that respect, it's almost 100% people, I am the magnificent double. I'm yeah, right. yeah. It, you can't argue no. with it. You can't argue no, and
2: with it, it, it helps that Dave Barker's one of the voices of God. It, him and yeah. Chuck D, yeah. I would
3: say. Chuck the Old Testament, Dave Barker, New Testament. It's a bit harsh on Dave Barker, isn't it? That he doesn't even get a surname on the credit. Mm. Ansel Collins gets his surname on it. Because for how long did I think they were brothers?
4: Yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah, and yeah. also
3: Ansel Collins uh, gets screwed over by his first name getting spelt differently pretty much everywhere you see it. Yes, like, two L's. In this country, yeah, E L I L. Yeah, yeah. At
2: least, at least Tony Blackburn didn't call him Dave and Ansel's bitter.
4: The other thing with Dave Barker, he doesn't do that much on this record, but if you listen to the original instrumental version of this that Ansel Collins did with, uh, what's his name, the producer, Winston Riley, um, Nuclear Weapon. Yes. (laughs) It's got a better title. But it's just his, it's like a lot of those records they did together. It's just his, Ansel Collins' weird ice rink organ Mm. over like this massive gut bucket bass, you know, and rhythm track. And, It's not a quarter as good Mm, as this mm. because it needs that sort of broken up vocal to give it that strange sort of abstraction, you know, that kind of weird feel.
2: And of course, this is a a version, isn't it? Yeah. Completely different. Obviously pre-recorded, especially for Top of the Pops. Uh. And, you know, if someone had told me before I watched this that, oh, it's not the same, I'd have been really fucked off. But... It's just as brilliant as the single. Yeah. And
3: and to, to to emphasise how startling the whole thing is, at the very start we get that strobing effect on oh, Dave Barker's yes. face, which you know, ought to come with some kind of warning for people suffering epilepsy. Yes. It was, yes. I mean, which I, I'm not, but it started to freak me out.
2: It's like shot from two angles and yeah, just clicked yeah. back and forth. Yeah, that uh, Because it would have been it would have been shocking to see this. Yeah. Like, A shock the of is mighty is if yeah, you yeah. were seeing it on top of the pops.
4: Everything about the presentation is great, though. They've got, like yes. they've got those the dim studio lights. Um, mm. They've got that qu- strobing, quick cutting. There's that deep blue set. Um, mm. It's all really different to the sort of cheap, bright look of Top of the Pops later on, you know. Mm. It's like the record's being taken seriously and it's being treated with a bit of thought and care, which sort of faded out of Top of the Pops, you know. Um, yeah. It's a lovely self-contained clip and it's a really good example of how music can work on tv with just the bare minimum of care and mm. thought and respect you know and of yeah. course their presentation is great because uh <laughs> dave and ansel are wearing rather nice plum colored suits um, and in,
3: uh, in in dave's case he's got a neckerchief that looks like a twister mat <laughs> yes
4: <laughs> yeah and the the rhythm section are, are dressed as what are they african tribesmen yeah, like yeah, gross yeah, yeah skirts. It's fantastic because yeah. it's like a, an embrace of roots, but also almost like a piss take, you know? Yes. Because it's like, I mean, these guys are standing there playing Fender bass and stuff, you know, it's a very 1970s, but it's like there's going to be people at home thinking that, oh, well, they're from Jamaica or something, go home and eat fried sheep's face or something, you know, <laughs> pray to some unholy God, you know. Mm. but And it looks fucking brilliant. You know, yes. because those lads have got the figure for it as well. It's not like Mungo Jerry covered in woad. You know? <laughs> that, that wouldn't have been as good.
3: On on the record, of course, Sly, Sly Dunbar, um, uh, 18 years old, I think, the yes. first record he played on. Sadly, that's not him on top of the No, I was
2: going to yeah.
4: say, it's not them, is it?
3: No, he wasn't able to make it over. Um, we spoke earlier about the, uh, the, the,
2: the, the people who hated reggae, and one of the most outspoken of them was none other than Tony Blackburn. He constantly claimed that reggae wasn't proper music in interviews. If he had to play a reggae record, he'd sometimes pull it off halfway through. And if he had to play a reggae cover version, he'd immediately follow it up with the superior original. I'm very disappointed to hear that. I didn't know that.
4: And surprised as well.
2: He apologised for it later. But at the time, yeah, he he was not feeling the rhythm, if you will. Yeah. yeah. But you, you have to say, you look back at certain charts... And, you know, when you see certain things at number one, you just go, yeah, that country had its head screwed on at the time. Yeah. Things just feel better when there's a really fucking amazing number one. Yeah. And of course, if you're, you know, a 14-year-old black kid, this must feel like victory in in the early 70s, seeing this on on top of the pops at number one. I guess so, but I
3: see its presence as being the result of a love affair between the white British working class and black Jamaica right yeah. because i i don't i don't know the stats but i wouldn't have thought there were enough uh black people in britain at that time to uh, yeah. alone to get that um so no. so high in the charts it's definitely a, a white working class thing of just buying this amazing record and not just this amazing record but but dozens of them you know yeah i mean the the
2: the one black lad in the audience He's well chuffed. Oh, he's having time of his life, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and by Top of the Pop's seventies standards, it's a shockingly cosmopolitan audience, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. That really struck yeah. You've got one Asian lad in this kind of like late sixties suit and a and a pink tie, and you've got two oriental girls. Yeah,
3: and you've got black people, and basically it's a um diversity that I think top of the pops would lose for a while before regaining it later on. Mm. But, yeah, I I found Mm. that really striking. It was really quite cheering to see that.
2: Yeah, but four people out of a studio of
3: 200. True (laughs) enough. So, Double Barrel will spend one
2: more week at number one before it was usurped by Knock Three Times by Tolio, Orlando and Dawn. (laughs) (laughs) The follow-up. And the other track he recorded that day, Monkey Spanner, got to number seven for three weeks in July of this year and they would sadly never trouble the charts again. Although Collins would go on to record Stalag 13, the rhythm track best known for Ring the Alarm by Tenor Soar, yeah. and Bam Bam by Sister Nancy.
4: And what's it called by General Echo? Ooh. What's that record called? Oh, shit. I've forgotten what it's called. Great record by General Echo, anyway. Same with it.
2: Because uh, some of the... I mean, I've got the album Double Barrel and there's some fucking tunes on it, man. The follow-up to Monkey Spanner is the most early 70s record ever. Ton up, kids. Have you ever heard it? Yeah. It's fucking amazing. From Trafalgar <laughs> Square to the Isle of Man, we're riding yeah. high. It's It's just the most 70s thing ever. Black Jamaicans singing a song to British skinheads <laughs> about Hell's Angels. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 you
0: That's Dave and Ansel Collins and uh, an number called Double Barrel, the brand new number one son. You will never forget that again, will you? No, Thank you very much indeed for watching. Hope you've enjoyed the show. Be back with us at the same time next week for another edition of Top of the Pot. See you then. Bye-bye.
2: Tony has the cheek to come back at that girl who forgot to say Double Barrel. Fucking hell, Tony, at least you didn't call Mark Boland Hot Rex or anything. <laughs> and this is the thing, right? This is your flagship pop programme, yeah? BBC One, the fucking the state broadcaster. And the fucking host fucks up badly on something. Surely you, you can spend one minute to go back and say, all right, say that
3: again properly, Tony. It's so ridiculous well, that for... I half wondered if he was doing a thing. But he's not. It's not a joke. No. Yeah. And he signs off with jig jig
2: by East of Eden. Formed in Bristol as Pictures of Dorian Gray in 1967, East of Eden were an early progressive rock band who signed to Durham Records a year later and released their debut LP, Makeda Projected, in 1969. Their second LP, Snarfu, was put out in early 1970 and got to number 29 in the album charts, but they didn't get a sniff of the singles chart until now. This single... The follow-up to Northern Hemisphere, which didn't sell Dick, is a less heavy departure for the band, and is a mash-up of three traditional reels. The Ash Plant Reel, Drowsy Magga, and Jenny's Chicken. It was released in May of 1970, and for some reason has only now been picked up by the pop-crazy youngsters, and it's up this week from number 34 to number 22. Well... The first thing we need to say about this is that we finally get to see the Slough Technical Training College rag week princess of 1971. And uh, exp- chaps, explain her retiring in a manner more couth than I ever could, please.
3: Well, she's basically wearing a long T-shirt and very visible knickers and that's it. Yes.
4: Yeah, it's like she's, yes. been, she's had to get out of bed to answer the door.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable flashing of knickerage. But she's actually doing some amazing dancing there. Oh, yes, she is. She's yes. totally having it. they yeah, <laughs> Properly yeah. going for it.
4: But who can blame her with the sounds of East mm. of Eden uh, <laughs> resounding around the studio? Yeah. It's a hippie bewitch. Yes. It's just what everyone wants. I've
3: got to say, that first bit, um, Al, what was the name of the first of the three jigs? The Ashplant Reel. Ashplant Reel. Right, because that first bit of the song, that sort of wig out psych instrumental bit that they do. Um, yes, I really felt that it it must have influenced one to another by the charlatans. Very similar riff going on. But then, yeah, it suddenly turns into this kind of well, a jig or a ceilidh or whatever. And, uh, it gets to jelly's it's, it's, chicken, doesn't it? It's, it's very weird. It's a sudden lurch, isn't it? It really is. It is.
2: And, and David, our good friend, once made mention during a performance of Remember You or Womble that British people cannot get enough of Irish fiddle and his opinion is proven absolutely right here, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. People just burst into smiles like
4: three-year-olds seeing a balloon. Oh, I ate a real <laughs> I mean, prog bands scoring novelty hits is usually bad enough at the best of times right but when they get jiggy with it it's nightmarish i Very can't good. stand this i can't say i can sort of take it as part of traditional music right like traditional irish or scottish music it doesn't trouble me. i don't like it but it doesn't trouble me because it's sort of aesthetically coherent um but when you take that jaunty shit and you put it in other kinds of music as a cheap way to grab the ear you know or to signify you know Celticness or something it makes my heart weep it's like that's what I have a hippie knees up you know what I mean <laughs> let's do the it's, it's, it's like the point where Fairport Convention knees
2: up mothers of invention you know? <laughs> yes yeah
4: Sandy Denny leaves Fairport Convention and almost instantly they go from making this authentically creepy affecting music to playing like the 17th century equivalent of Agadou um, <laughs> but you know well, full of what in his Red Barrel um, mm. the whole thing reeks of that gloom that 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 very early 70s British hippie prog rock gloom which is what I mm. always associate with this stuff where you've got like hairy blokes in mouldy greatcoats lugging their gear into a comma van you know, because they've got to drive to Staffordshire Polytechnic for a gig in the <laughs> refectory. And they haven't built most of the motorways yet, so they've got to go via Northampton. And it takes five hours, you know. Uh, it's a sort of newsreel IRA bleakness. Like When you see Melody Maker front covers from 1971, and it's like yeah. a picture of someone playing a Les Paul in a vest with their armpit hair sticking out. You know <laughs> yes. what I mean? Like, in- <laughs> like Kipper. Yeah, it's just like, oh, you know, bummer, man. My old <laughs> lady's hamster pissed on my stash. It's like, you know, it's, a, yeah. it's like, not, never mind punk reaction. Explain Kipper, and, uh, uh, you Taylor, to the uh, uninitiated Kipper. Oh, from uh, Confessions of a Pop Singer. Is that what it's called? Yes. Confessions of a Pop Star? I haven't seen it for years. Yes. Yeah, they were the yes. the group that Robin Asquith joined on drums in that. Mm. And... Uh, Basically, were like a sounded like a proto Oasis.
3: Yes. <laughs> My favourite fact to come out of reason up on this lot is that um, the violinist from East of Eden, Dave Arbus, um, mm. not only played on Baba O'Reilly by the Who, um, but was also in Fiddler's Dram. Yes. Um, but sadly, he left them before Day Trip to Bangor. So, otherwise, that would have been quite an amazing connection. Um, and um oh I love this bit. This is I'm just gonna quote directly from Wikipedia here. because um, it's so beautifully understated, right? Um, the three core members, Arbus, Keynes and Nicholson, reunited in nineteen ninety six and their album Calypse was released the next year. Like most of their earlier work, it was a cult hit. <laughs> <laughs>
4: That's total spinal tap.
3: Their appeal became selective.
4: Uh, And the other thing I hate about East of Eden, don't name yourself after a piece of art which already exists, which is better than what you're going to do.
3: Oh, Uh, I always hate that with band names. Yeah.
4: Yeah. A book or a film or a painting, or worst of all, somebody else's song. You know, how clearly do you want to signal that you're fundamentally second rate? And this isn't even an imaginative one or an appropriate one because most people, when you hear East of Eden, First thing you think of is maybe James Dean and you can't really imagine him doing the river dance to this. The brooding sexual charisma of jigger jig. You know. (laughs) Fucking (laughs) jig off jigsaw had more brooding sexual charisma. He
3: was in he was in Rebel Without a Cause, not Rebel Without the Cause. Oh yes. Mm. Come on i <laughs> say
2: that was off the cuff. Very good. The, the bands you were talking about earlier, um, Taylor really? uh, on the on the way to the Polytechnic, Renia, of oh, course. Yes, yes. Uh, we've spoken about the All That Glitters Schools program documentary about uh, the Suite. At the same time, they did one about a, an upcoming band called Renia, who were basically all those things that uh, Taylor talked about earlier. Yeah. Check it out on the video playlist, Pop Crazy youngsters. Hm. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is essentially one last chance to have a good old lair at the flower of the Slough Technical Training College. And it, and it
3: is weird, you know, it's like, have we learnt nothing? I mean, seeing this now, you just think, how the fuck did that get on the telly? And, yeah, it's just, you know, um, all through this we've been talking about were they making certain editorial decisions because of caution and having their wrists slapped and suddenly at the very end no, no. <laughs> so the following week Jigga Jig leapt seven places to number 15
2: and would eventually spend two weeks at number seven in late May the follow up Ramadan failed to chart on although it got to number two in France and they never troubled the charts again after myriad lineup changes East of Eden finally packed it in in 1978 and that dear boys is the end of this episode of Top of the Pops. But, 45 years later, in the wake of the BBC's investigation into Jimmy Savile, the Claire Offland story was brought up again when Tony Blackburn was sacked after 49 years at the corporation. After he was summoned to the inquiry to discuss the two interviews he was alleged to have had with his bosses in the wake of the inquest, two meetings he claimed not to have had. BBC Director General Tony Hall said that Blackburn quote, had fell short of the standards of evidence that such an inquiry demanded and asked him to retire from the BBC, though he was reinstated at BBC
3: Radio London
4: eight months later.
3: Bit of a cunt's trick, I think, on Tony, that.
4: Yeah, oh, they were just looking for an excuse.
3: Yeah, um, yeah. One thing I quite enjoyed uh, was uh there, there was a, a, an interview that Tony Blackburn gave um, in, in response to all this all this stuff, um, you know, only a couple of years ago. And uh, he, he clarifies this whole idea about him being suspended. And he says, the one time I was taken off air was when I said the miners should go back to work.
2: <laughs> yes.
3: So what's on telly
2: afterwards? Well, BBC One goes straight into an episode of Comedy Playhouse written by John Lloyd and Graham Garden. Then it's Zed Cars, the Nine O'Clock News, Donald Pleasance and Thor heard starring The Foxtrot, which is this week's play for today. Then the current affairs programme, 24 Hours, and finishes off with a documentary about the Royal Institution of Great Britain. BBC Two is midway through Newsroom with Peter Woods. Then Lady Astor's Buckler is interviewed in the short documentary series Times Remembered, followed by The Money Programme, Gardner's World, Nana Muscori Presents Show of the Week, then the news, Disco Two featuring Cochise and Loudon Wendry the Third and finishes off with the 1945 French film Nay. ITV is about to screen On the House, the Kenneth Connor and John Junkin sitcom, which also features Robin Asquith and Derek Griffiths. This week, News at 10, the movie review series Cinema, and rounds off with Pete Murray presenting the Sun TV Awards. So what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow, dear boys?
3: What I would have been talking about at the uh, nursery school on Trinity Street in Barry um, at the age of three <laughs> Uh, would have been the big yellow car in the Mixtures video.
4: That girl dancing where you could see her knickers, Let's Face Facts. Yes. I mean, especially in 1971, because that was the Mm. nearest thing to hardcore pornography that British people had, you know. (laughs) Because, you know, it was either that or off to the ABC to watch a sex comedy called Stick It Up Downstairs, you know, with Arthur (laughs) Lowe as the Lord of the Manor and Gabrielle Drake as his faithless wife. And like Linda Hayden as a like a nymphomaniac serving wench with a IQ of 40. And a taste <laughs> for gone-to-seed middle-aged men with teeth like a blown-over fence.
2: And what are we buying on Saturday? Double barrel,
3: all day long. Oh,
4: yeah. Yeah, Dave and Ansel, Ardene, Ringo. Uh, I've been tempted to buy the Jacksons record if I hadn't already bought it twice before under a different titles.
2: <laughs> And what does this episode tell us about 1971?
4: The 60s is done, but the 70s are still gurgling and screaming and anything Mm. could yet happen. Who knows, it might Mm. be brilliant.
3: Rockism is trying to kill us, but reggae and soul will save the day.
2: And that, me dears brings us to the end of this episode of Chart Music. All that remains is a usual promotional flange, www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. Join us on um, what the fuck you call it, the thing where people are racist to each other. Oh, yeah, Twitter, Chart Music, T-O-T-P, money down the G-string, patreon.com slash chartmusic. Thank you very much, Simon Price. You're welcome. Tart ever so, Taylor Parks. Jeez. My name's Al Needham. Ugh!
1: <laughs> Chart <laughs> music.
4: I have a word with oh, all mine. Oh. Oh. You've dropped one. <laughs> <laughs> well, i tell you something. He said he'd bring the house down. He certainly did. Even the dog didn't know where it was. Listen, oh. oh, so who, who,
0: who yeah, gone? Yeah. We all did. Yeah, yeah, all we all, go, all did. They
4: all yes,
3: gone. Well, what, what do you think? No. What, what? no. I think it's a shame. What do you think it of Mr. It made Blackburn? me ashamed to be
0: British. <laughs> oh. oh, I feel all like that. Do you uptight? Oh, sorry, yeah. Made what about me, you? made me ashamed to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I think Tony did his best, and that was the saddest thing about it, really. (laughs) I see. That's not nice. Not nice.
2: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.